You have arrived. Do not adjust your monitor. Make sure your tinfoil hat is shiny. Lock your doors. If you're standing, sit down. If you're sitting, lie down. If you're driving, please pull over. Swipe and share. Curse and comment. Open debate. Trolls welcome. Resist or mega. Left or right. Darkness or light. Flight or fight. Political turmoil. Innuendo. Lies. Deception. Rhetoric. Fake news. AI. Extremism. Lucifer. And laughs. Welcome to. The. Daily. Boogie. Happy Thursday, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Thanks for joining us. What an absolute pleasure to see you. I hope I find you well. I hope you've had a lovely week. I certainly have, of course, like every other week. Why wouldn't I? You don't need to hear about my problems. (laughs) Because I have none. James R., the owner and CEO of TAVshow.com, ladies and gentlemen, has graced us with his presence, his excellency. Keep bouncing myself out trying to hear over the band. <laughs> here is here is the ever-committed James R., ladies and gentlemen, experiencing life like only only us peasants could, you know, best hope for. He is standing atop uh, a building in the wonderful and lovely and luxurious Hawaii. <laughs> Sunshine is beaming down onto his face. He's enjoying hors d'oeuvres. Selected from all corners of the globe, I'm sure. The finest cocktails mixed by the finest cocktail makers. And yet here he is, in here, wasting time (laughs) with some foreign devil colluding. He is absolutely colluding with a foreign entity, that being me. Thanks for joining us, by the way. James is probably, to the person who was asking, uh, please stop inviting me to this, James is probably the guy. So... Uh, you know, I, I, I hope to eventually catch up to his like his his aura of greatness. And I, what I'm going to do, what my plan is, to just chip away one follower at a time, because you know, a follower of his isn't necessarily a follower of mine. We have very different tastes. We have very different styles, which is understandable. But if I can make them hate him through him liking me then it's like a win-win, right? <laughs> I'm never going to convert this person. That's fine. 
if I can make them hate him, then I win. Right? Do you see? Do you see? So deceptive. Thanksgiving. So to my American brothers and sisters, I wish you on this most strange holiday that um, we as Australians don't understand in any at any level whatsoever. And I, I, I will go through the customary, you know, role play. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> Even though I really, I really don't understand it. I don't understand the Thanksgiving holiday at all. Um, number one, I don't understand the obsession with turkey. Turkey has probably got to be my least favourite bird. I, I would probably rather eat quail than turkey. Have you ever eaten quail? It is nasty shit, man. Quail is nasty. And it comes in like little packets of four because they're so small. Like you could pick up a quail and just like dunk it, do it in one swallow. You don't even have to chew. They're tiny. Yeah, see, best holiday and stuff. I don't know. As you can imagine, well, you know, the the, the title of today's show. So uh, this is this is my this is my olive branch. Even though I don't understand your strange holiday, I do extend the olive branch, and I want to welcome you. Uh, I I merely assume that anybody who is in here spending time with us right now is either fat from eating too much at lunchtime, and you know is holding their phone, can't be bothered, you know, getting up and doing something. So you must be there, like looking at the phone or looking at the iPad. Which is totally understandable, bro. I've been there. I've been there. Or you're you're drunk because you're drinking a lot of beer watching the watching the football today. Because I understand there's football on in Thanksgiving, isn't there? Isn't that that kind of tradition? <clears throat> so, uh, you know, you drank too much beer and you're drunk, and so you ended up in my scope. And God bless you, sir, because I've been there too. I've been fat and drunk. I know. Thou- thousands wouldn't believe it. But I'm here to tell you that it's absolutely true. It's not fake news. And the lonely, of course, uh, because, you know, holidays holidays can be a very sad time for people. And, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not someone that's heartless. I'm not callous. I understand. So if you're lonely or maybe you're just like a kind of a jerk that nobody likes, that, that's okay. You're welcome here. All of the jerks. I, that's, that's what I'm trying to capture. That's my niche market. The people who have eaten too much can't be bothered getting off the couch. The people who have drank too much and are alcoholic. And the people that nobody else likes. Jackie O's working. Jack. Jack. Jack's working. Well, he is a trucker. Celeste, thanks for joining us. I was focused on business matters all day and took a moment to make homemade crumpets. Well, crumpets are sensational. See, I'd rather a crumpet over a turkey. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Giblets. Chicken giblets. Now, giblets giblets is a strange area. We're getting into offal at that point. It's funny. Um, an old friend of mine who's since passed away, an Englishman, very intelligent guy, super intelligent, um, older than myself, like a generation above. He's unfortunately left us, but we spent many a day in a haze of bong smoke discussing how we would solve the world's problems. <laughs> And uh, he once told me, you know, he was English and he spoke with a very thick English accent, but obviously he was here in Australia when I met him. And he would often lament the the residual hatred that the English have of anything that is enjoyable. (laughs) That's the way he put it. (laughs) 
he'd say, you know, Boogie, even though he didn't call me Boogie, but he's like, you know, Boogie, it's, it's the darndest thing, mate. I fly my parents out here. I've been listening to them for 10 fucking years complaining about how cold it is in England. And I fly them out here down to Australia, basically an island paradise, and all they want to do is walk around and, and talk about how fucking hot it is. I, like, I can't win, mate. <laughs> So his his thesis on the back of this was they just they yearn to be miserable. They they're only you know they're only happy when it rains kind of thing. I'm only happy when I'm miserable. But his dad was uh, served in World War Two, and so he'd be t- he'd take him down to the butcher shop, and you know uh, he's like, Dad, pick out whatever you want. So Dad would go around and get all the liver, get the brains, get the offal. And he turned to him and said, Dad, what's wrong with you? He's like, what do you mean? He goes, you're living in Australia. You can buy a T-bone steak for five bucks. Why are you buying liver and shit? Why are you buying kidneys? The war is over. You don't have to ration anymore. <laughs> Which merely only, you know, uh, gave credence to his theory that all English people want to do is be miserable all the time. Otherwise, why would they continue le- eating awful liver and brains and kidneys when they don't have to, when they can buy steak. It's a good point. So, I did want to keep it light tonight, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do feel like I have to round, like, I just want to burn through some semi-serious stuff before we have a bit of fun together. Thanks for joining us, by the way, guys. It's an absolute pleasure to see you. Wow, full house. Uh, Lucifer Sam, I want every, again, second week in a row, I want everybody to give a tip of the hat to Lucifer Sam. Here is somebody who actually is dedicated. I've known this guy. How long have we known each other now, Lucifer? Maybe nine months, something like that. Here is a guy who is absolutely dedicated to reforming not the Republican Party, but the Democrat Party. And you don't have to agree with the Democrat Party. You don't have to be a Democrat. You don't have to agree with Democrat Party principles or platforms. But here is a guy who himself is dedicated to snapping the Democrats out of their collective madness and saying, hey, just fucking smarten up. Stop being dumb. And to that, I think, you know, you deserve a bit of credit. And I'm happy to give it to you. It's quite a task you've got ahead of you. It's quite a mountain to climb, quite an Everest to conquer. But I'm sure it's all going to be worth it at the end. So I know the reception you've got has been, perhaps we could say it's been a little bit frosty. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, you'll be surprised to know that not only do the Democrats hate you as Trump-supporting Republicans, they also hate other Democrats. (laughs) In fact, in fact, I think it's I think it's fair to say that they reserve the most hatred for people who claim to be Democrats but don't just go along with the Nancy Pelosi is wonderful, uh, racism is the most uh, evil thing and the most important thing happening right now and there's no solution except smashing people over the head with it. It seems like they hate the Democrats who are against those kinds of things more than they hate you, amazingly. Of course, I was saying this what about a month ago on the show I host with James R. Trusted Verify on a Sunday night. Don't miss it. It's obviously fantastic. And I'm completely unbiased. I'm very objective. But, uh, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, her enemy, ladies and gentlemen, is not the Republican Party right now. Her enemy is the Democrat Party. Stefan Sears, thanks for joining us. 
the 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 hard left, the institutionalized university tier, uh, you know, as Sam would say, the nobles, the nobles of the Democrat Party, those who sit upon their podium and look down their nose at the rest of us, you know, the the, the peasants, the blue collar scum. They need their vote, but they don't really like them. You know, that attitude. Uh, you know, the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, their enemy is the moderate Democrats, not the Republicans. She's going to war with Nancy Pelosi. She's going to war with the quote-unquote establishment. You know, there is populism on the left. And, I, you know, as someone who has significant tendencies and sympathies towards, say, a more, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a very socially liberal person. I'm a very socially liberal person. And so I, I guess I find some common ground with people who would be quote-unquote liberals. Um, unfortunately for me and unfortunately for them, when it comes to economics, I find myself very much on the far right on the, on the spectrum. <laughs> As a friend remarked to me a couple of weeks ago, um, Economically, I'm basically smacking Milton Friedman on the ass, if that makes any sense to you. And if you don't know who Milton Friedman is, you probably should. So look him up. That's a big, big struggle ahead to reform the Democrat Party. But I did want to get into something a little semi-serious. And for those who have been listening to the podcast, this will this will come to you rather naturally. Uh, I was having a discussion with. Um, you know, a friend, someone as 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 much of a friend as you can be in this internet space, which is difficult. Don't get me wrong. Um, but of course, you know, as as you know, a friend. Uh, and we were discussing, you know, politics and language, and you know, speeches, for example, and you know, the notion of trust in politics, which I find to be like a unicorn. Um, you know, I, I, I would, I would wager, I would suspect that trust is more fleeting in politics than flying pigs, and there's a very good reason for it. Is because there are constant conflicts of agendas, constant conflicts of ambition. See, people don't, people don't realise. Um, you know, we like we like to think that politics is filled with people who want to do the right thing, and it doesn't really matter if you're on the right or the left. And again, I'm not saying that everybody falls into this category, but the level of ambition in politics is far more prevalent than most people would dare to think. You know, some people might think, well, there's maybe one or two bad eggs that want to, you know, they're just all about it for themselves. It's really the opposite way around. And the sad reality is those who aren't in it for themselves, those who aren't, you know, overly ambitious, those who aren't careerists, they often get weeded out well before they get to serve. You know, <clears throat> these political parties are not uh, collections of like-minded people. These political parties are multi-million dollar empires, Right. There's a lot of money at stake. There's a lot of reputation at stake. There's a lot of power at stake. And power is the currency that these people deal in. And in the backroom deals, in the backroom brawls, where certain things are exchanged for certain things and certain privileges are exchanged for certain things and certain deals are done in order to allow certain things to go through, your your personal 
idealized, you know, projection onto that system is practically irrelevant. It doesn't really exist. It is a nasty, 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 nasty business. And, you know, to be fair, um, people say it shouldn't be that way. I, I don't necessarily agree with that either. I tend to think, well, it should be that way because what are we dealing with here? We're dealing with people's lives. We're dealing with the fate of the country. If you're talking about America, you're dealing with the fate of the, you know, the free world. The American sphere of influence extends beyond your borders, ladies and gentlemen. It touches us. It touches all of us who are beneath the wing of the American bald eagle, such as people like myself down here. And I've often said to people who, you know, hate America's influence in the world and they hate American culture, you know, culture, you know, that's one thing or another, but uh, political influence, I've often said to these people, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather be under the wing of the American bald eagle than under the jackboot of the Chinese Communist Party. And it might seem silly to present such a binary choice, but that's that's the nature of power. When there is a vacuum, somebody will fill it. Power doesn't exist in a vacuum, but power will always fill a vacuum, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Thanks for, thanks for the people just coming in late. So, let me just take a sip of my beverage here. If you do have a beverage... If you're in the fat and lonely category, now would be the time to take a beverage. If you're in the drunk category, don't take another beverage, otherwise you'll end up fat and lonely. You see how it works? (laughs) Wonderful. Pardon me. So as as you can imagine, the education system here probably matches yours to a great extent. the main difference being that we would probably learn more about you than you would learn about us, but we're going to change that tonight because I've got some fantastic weather news to update you with down here in Australia, the land of extremes, the land where every living thing is trying to kill you, and if that doesn't kill you, then the sun will. It's an absolutely fantastic place to be. <laughs> it's paradise. But as you can imagine, our, our education system mimics you know, most education systems around the Western world in so much as they're completely fucking disgusting and terrible and they don't really teach the kids anything about what really happens in the world. So, but taking that all on board, taking that on board, I do believe I do have the right idea about Thanksgiving in America. I think I've got it right. So we'll get to that a little later on. But back to the original point, what we were talking about and speeches and writing and uh, you know this 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 nature of trust, and I, I did the podcast the other day. Um, the three laws of politics. I won't go over it here. If you want to go and check it out, download it, listen to it, it's up to you. Just look for the Daily Boogie on iTunes or Podbean, and I think it's relevant. And I I, I really wish I I would hope that um, we can get to that level of understanding of what politics is. You know, fundamentally, when we break when we break away all of the shit, all of the rhetoric, all of the lies, all of the discussion, all of the wants, all of the needs, and if you just break it down, it comes down to three fundamental premises. But I won't ruin it for you if you haven't heard it. So do go and check it out, the three laws of politics. But 
bubbling on top of these three laws and, you know, political speech. So, and, you know, I lament the fact that there's a level of immaturity with how we in the Western world view our relationship to our elected our, our elected leaders. And, you know, it's, I'm not saying we're dumb. I'm not saying we're immature. I, I merely think it is a condition of the system. It's a condition of – it's m- so many factors. It's not that somebody's dumb. It's not that somebody's not paying attention. It's not that politicians aren't lying. It's, it's all. It's everything. It is, it, is, it is the Petri dish that we are brought up in as, like, bacteria looking up at the scientists looking down upon us right? It's just the way it is. But this immaturity displays itself in many ways. And, I, and you know, as James will attest to, my co-pilot on Trust and Verify, uh, you know, something that I've been saying for a long, long time, as long as we've been friends, is once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once, once, this, once this sheen is ripped off, once this, uh, you know, stained glass of illusion is shattered with a rock of concise language. It's very difficult to see the sh- it's very difficult to see the stained glass window ever again. You only see the sunlight coming through it blinds you every single time. And little things like, you know, we were talking my, myself and my friend were talking about uh, you know how politicians would would say things like well, how can we have good relations with another country? You know, how about, you know, my country and your country, we're best friends. And and my, my argument is politicians will deliberately use childish language like our countries are the best of friends in order to perpetuate the immaturity with which we view the system. Because, of course, when something's childish, it's diminished, it's not serious, it's friendly, it's, it's, it's cute. Which, of course, gives credence to a lot of people who want to write a lot of shit about politics in the corporate media and really have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, they and the political machine as an entity in its entirety, uh, they want us to be arguing over shit. They want us to be arguing over things that are completely and utterly irrelevant, inconsequential. They want us to be making the exact same accusations of each other across the aisle, pointing fingers. When in reality, the thing that they fear most is not me, the voter, versus you, the voter, ladies and gentlemen. The thing that keeps the political machine up at night is when the mere peasants, that being you and me, come to the discovery that it's not me, the voter, versus you, the voter. It's us, the voters, versus them. That's the real fight. That's really where it is. And when you apply the three immutable laws of politics to politics and your discussions and the arguments, every press release, every comment, every debate, every tweet, every policy shift, everything, 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 everything must first apply to the three laws of politics, the three immutable laws of politics. Everything that happens in a political space is to get power, to keep power, or to stop somebody else from getting power. That's it. 
It doesn't matter if you're a far lefty. It doesn't matter if you're a far righty. It doesn't matter if you want a Christian culture. It doesn't matter if you want social justice. Nothing can be achieved unless you get power, keep power, and stop somebody else from taking it. It is literal, Those three laws literally apply to every ideology, every morality, every opinion, every method, all of them, all the time. So once, <clears throat> once you start assessing things on that level, freedom forever, thanks for joining us on stream, mate. Once you start assessing things on those level, and I'm, I'm hearing it's, oh, that's so cliched. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I, I do my, I deplore cliches. I do my best to work around them. But unfortunately, some truths uh, do, my friend, do, they do sound cliched, like the sun will rise tomorrow. I guess that's a cliche too. The relevant truth value of it is almost irrelevant. I wish I, could, I, I wish I could come up with some kind of other theory that wouldn't be so cliched as, you know, us the voters versus them, but apparently it's one of the, the lesser-known cliches that we're living with today. Mm. Fantastic beverage. So we were talking about um, language, so things like the politicians coming out saying... Well, you know, we're best friends. Minimize it. It, it. Using that kind of childish language keeps us in an immature cycle, so we never actually get to see the brutality of what's actually happening. And I shared in that in that conversation an essay, which was written seventy years ago, and it was still relevant today. Uh, by a man named Eric Blair, born Eric Blair, otherwise known as George Orwell. Another cliche. <laughs> Someone who hated cliches more than anyone who ever lived, George Orwell. And it's something that everybody should lead, read at least once, but I'm just going to play a little clip of um, an author talking about this particular essay, Politics in the, and the English Language, and what effect it had on him. And then I'm going to read a little bit from politics in the English language and see what you think, see if it still applies, see if you can get anything out of it, see if it makes sense, even 70 years later, ladies and gentlemen. And But like I said, I do want to burn through the serious stuff and have a little bit of fun on this Your Strange Holiday where apparently it's about killing Indians or something. I don't know. I don't know. Killing Indians or something? I'm not sure. It's funny, someone saying 1984. Um <clears throat> A lot of people know 1984 and they know Animal Farm. I was speaking with a, an economist the other day, another very intelligent guy, super intelligent Dutch guy. And I said, you know, have you ever read English uh, politics in the English language? And he was surprised. And he goes, no, I've never heard of it. And But he was talking about George Orwell. So I was, I was taken aback. And I'm like, well, you absolutely should read it. It's fantastic wisdom in there. So... Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sticking around. We will burn through the semi-serious stuff on this fat, drunk uncle day, eat a bird day. But first, I do want to cover this off, so let's see how we go here. You'll like this. One journalist sings the praises of another now in the latest installment of our series, You Must Read This. 
Lawrence Wright is a correspondent for The New Yorker magazine and the author of the book The Looming Tower, about the roots of al-Qaeda. He recommends an essay by the man he thinks of as the master of political journalism. People these days tend to think of George Orwell as a writer for high school students, since his reputation now rests on two late novels, Animal Farm and 1984, that are seldom read outside the classroom. But through most of his career, Orwell was known for his journalism and his rigorous, unsparing essays, which documented a time that seems in some ways so much like our own. At the end of the Second World War, one form of totalitarianism, fascism, had been defeated, but another, communism, was spreading across Europe and Asia. Orwell's own country, England, was suffering through a political crisis. It was then, in 1946, that Orwell wrote his great essay, Politics and the English Language which I first read as a freshman at Tulane University and immediately adopted as my guide. Over the years, I've gone back to it repeatedly, like a student visiting an old professor who always has something new to reveal. Orwell's proposition is that modern English is so corrupted by bad habits that it has become impossible to think clearly. The main enemy, he believed, was insincerity which hides behind the long words and empty phrases that stand between what is said and what is really meant. A scrupulous writer, Orwell notes, will ask himself, what am I trying to say? What words will express it? What fresh image will make it clearer? Have I said anything that is avoidably ugly? Orwell was a supremely political writer, having waged a lifelong campaign against totalitarianism, And indeed, for him, all issues were political issues. And politics itself, a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. Orwell's candor, his steadiness, his stern and scrupulous impartiality are qualities that make this essay still sound contemporary and urgent. I think the secret of Orwell's timelessness is that he doesn't seek to please or entertain. Indeed, he captures the reader with a style as intimate and frank as a handshake. Orwell optimistically sets forward six simple rules, guidelines that anyone, not just professional writers, can follow. But I'm not going to tell you what they are. You'll have to reread that essay yourself. I'm only going to speak about rule number one, which is never use a metaphor, simile, or other figure of speech that you are used to seeing in print. Cliché. For me, that's the hardest rule. Clichés like cockroaches in the cupboard quickly infest a careless mind. At the end of the day. I constantly struggle with the prefabricated phrases that substitute for simple, clear prose. Political language, Orwell reminds us, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable. One cannot change this all in a moment, but one can, at least, change one's own habits. Isn't that wonderful? Orwell Isn't wasn't that interested in decorative writing. Isn't that beautiful? <clears throat> Political language is to... God, I forget the quote. I have, I have to let the guy say it again. It's just what a wonderful... You can tell the passion, the way he speaks of this essay, how important it is to him, how important it should be to most of us today. It's still relevant today. Clichés like cockroaches in the cupboard quickly infest a careless mind. I constantly struggle with the prefabricated phrases that substitute for simple, clear prose. Political language, Orwell reminds us, is designed to make lies sound truthful and murder respectable. 
One cannot change this all in a moment, but one can, at least, change one's own habits. Orwell wasn't interested in decorative writing, but his straightforward declarative style has a snap in it that few other writers have ever approached. In a time when politics and the English language once again seem to be at odds, perhaps his essay can make us remember that clarity is the remedy. Lawrence Rye is the author of the. So we were on Trust and Verify the other night, and I read an article from Salon. It was written by a professor, by the way. And you know, I'm not going to read it again. Um, but this this thing was word salad if you've ever seen it. You could read a paragraph and be, you know, a reasonably intelligent person. I, I don't think that I'm like the most intelligent person, but I'm definitely not the dumbest. And I definitely understand the mechanics of writing and political language. Um, I mean, there are books out there, you know, on my bookshelf filled with political speeches and notes that I've taken extensive notes that would suggest that I, you know, somewhat understand how it all goes. And this 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 article was <laughs> it was a monstrosity. The invented words, the false equivocations. It was surreal. It was surreal to be reading it. And, you know, I still, I still thought, you know, it was fun because it was so stupid. But it, this, this kind of language is ever-present. I've made this point before and I'll, I've told this little story before and I'll say it again just so it makes some kind of sense to people what I'm talking about. Those who have heard the story before, don't be a spoiler. Um, driving through a tunnel in Sydney... Right, it's very, very simple stuff. What I'm talking about, and like I said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. So one lane was closed in the tunnel, and this tunnel has the technology where if you're driving through and they need to make an announcement, they can cut into your radio signal. So the, it plays the tunnel announcement, the tunnel authority announcement over your car radio. And so I'm driving through the tunnel, and you know, there's there's signs there saying get out of the right lane. But rather than say drivers, something along the lines of drivers, please stay out of the right lane, there is work taking place. Something like that. Something very concise. Something very succinct. Something that is easily understandable and accessible to most people. Instead of doing something like that, which would be good writing... The the tunnel authority comes on the radio and it says, you know, um, drivers, please be aware uh, you need to merge to the left lane in order to facilitate safe work, safe maintenance activities. Ladies and gentlemen, please observe tunnel signage to facilitate safe maintenance activities. You know, it's well within people's right at that point to go, what the fuck are they talking about? What the fuck is a safe maintenance activity? They should just say, stay out of the right lane. There's people there. That'll work. No. You've got to observe tunnel signage to facilitate safe maintenance activities. And this corruption of language. And like Orwell stated, uh, modern English and the, you know, the kind of dripping overuse and self-flagellation that writers have now for whatever reason, whether it's ego or stupidity or ignorance, whatever, 
what it does is it creates a cognitive environment for the reader, for the audience, where it becomes difficult to think clearly. If you can't write clearly, you can't think clearly, right? So let me read for you a little bit from Politics in the English Language, an essay written in 1946, 72 years ago, and still as relevant today as it ever was. And this this will hopefully help you. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Once you Once you're able to, once it, inherently uh, hits you the manipulation that is inherent in modern day political journalism you you you'll, you won't be the same again like I don't have any special talent or anything you know I'm not some uh, you know liberal writing whisperer by reading you know articles on these far left websites and being able to break it down sentence to sentence this is not a special talent this is basic English and understanding modes of writing and tone of writing and various tricks that writers use. It's not difficult. So let me read for you. Hopefully I don't butcher it too much. Politics in the English Language. George Orwell, 1946. In our time, it is broadly true that political writing is bad writing. Like already it's it's relevant to today, isn't it? He was talking about this in 1946. Where it is not true, it will generally be found that the writer is some kind of rebel, expressing his private opinions and not a party line. Orthodoxy of whatever colour seems to demand a lifeless, imitative style. The political dialects to be found in pamphlets, leading articles, manifestos, white papers and the speeches of undersecretaries do, of course vary from party to party, but they are all alike in that one almost never finds them in a fresh, vivid, homemade turn of speech. If I can just break from the article for one second, and you know, I get a lot of criticism for this, but I've often said that, thanks for joining us, Kirsten, I've often said that um, in years to come, Donald Trump's speeches will be looked upon as some of the greatest speeches who are, that were ever delivered in politics at any time. And, you know, people people can have their criticisms. I'm not denying your criticisms. You can have your criticisms. Oh, he speaks in boorish language. Uh, he says things that you shouldn't say. He's, he acts unpresidential. Yes. But what you have to do is place him against the backdrop of what we came from. You know, all of the years that existed before 2016 didn't just vanish when Donald Trump was elected. And what is absolutely understood and known is that people were and still are absolutely sick to death of everything being manicured and focus grouped and every word being in a certain place in order so they can't offend anybody. They always say the right thing. The problem is when you do that, you're not dangerous. And if you're not dangerous, you're not exciting. And if you're not exciting, you're a shit speech deliverer. Because nothing bores people more than speeches where there are no surprises, where there is no emotional ride, where there's nothing to be gained. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why, although I get criticism from people, 
that is why I think in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time, people will look back on this era and Donald Trump's speeches and go, that was, that was the moment that it changed. This guy changed political speech forever. And, you know, your personal hatred of Donald Trump, your personal dislike of his boorish manner, his, your personal dislike of his blue-collar language style, that's all fine. That's all well and good. But I'm going to tell you that, that your personal dislike is not going to change the way it's viewed because the way it will be viewed will be relative and compared to everything else that existed at the time. And everything else that existed at the time was exactly the same as itself. And he wasn't. And that's how you break the mold. That's how you get remembered in history. Not by doing the exact same thing that everybody else does a little bit better or a little bit cleaner or a little bit less offensive. By doing something different than everybody else does. By being different. Even though you are being criticised at the time for doing it. Nobody remembers sameness. And if you're the same as everybody else, then nobody's going to remember you either. Let's go back. When one watches some tired hack on, a, on the platform mechanically repeating the familiar phrases, bestial, atrocities, iron heel, bloodstained tyranny, free peoples of the world stand shoulder to shoulder, one often has a curious feeling that one is not watching a live human being, but some kind of dummy a feeling which suddenly becomes stronger at moments when the light catches the speaker's spectacles and turns them into blank discs which seem to have no eyes behind them. Isn't that beautiful? And this is not altogether fanciful. A speaker who uses that kind of phraseology has gone some distance toward turning himself into a machine. The appropriate noises are coming out of his larynx, but his brain is not involved. As it here, here is George Orwell, seventy-two years ago, predicting the NPC meme. As it would be as if he were choosing his words for himself. If the speech he is making is one that he is accustomed to make over and over again, he may be almost unconscious of what he is saying, as one, as one is when one utters the responses in church. And this reduced state of consciousness, if not indispensable, is at any rate favourable to political conformity. In our time, political speech and writing are largely the defence of the indefensible. Things like the continuance of British rule in India, the Russian purges and deportations, the dropping of the atom bobs on Japan can indeed be defended, but only by arguments which are too brutal for most people to face and which do not square with the professed aims of the political parties. Thus, political language has to consist largely of euphemism, question-begging and sheer cloudy vagueness. Defenceless villages are bombarded from the air, the inhabitants driven out into the countryside, the cattle machine gunned and the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called pacification. Millions of peasants are robbed of their farms and sent trudging along the roads with no more than they can carry. This is called transfer of population or rectification of frontiers. 
People are imprisoned for years without trial or shot in the back of the neck or sent to die of scurvy in Arctic lumber camps. This is called elimination of unreliable elements. Such phraseology is needed if one wants to name things without calling up mental pictures of them. Consider, for instance, some comfortable English professor defending Russian totalitarianism. He cannot say outright, quote, I believe in killing off your opponents when you can get good results by doing so. Probably, therefore, he will say something like this, quote, while freely conceding that the Soviet regime exhibits certain features which the humanitarian may be inclined to deplore, we must, I think, agree that a certain curtailment of the right to political opposition is an unavoidable concoction of transitional periods and that the rigours which the Russian people have been called upon to undergo have been amply justified in the sphere of concrete achievement. Is that not applicable today? Is that not something that you would hear a professor say today? In, instead of just saying, you know, making the argument because it's too brutal for people's virgin ears to hear, if you really believe in it, I believe in killing off your opponents when you get good results by doing so. Instead, they have to come up with all of that bunk. Is that not all of political opinion writing today? The inflated style itself is a kind of euphemism. A mass of Latin words fall upon the facts like soft snow, blurring the outline and covering up all the details. The great enemy of clear language is insincerity. When there is a gap between one's real and one's declared aims, one turns, as as it were, instinctively to long words and exhausted idioms, like a cuttlefish spurting out ink. That's fantastic. In our age, there is no such thing as keeping out of politics. All issues are political issues. And politics itself is a mass of lies, evasions, folly, hatred, and schizophrenia. When the general atmosphere is bad, language must suffer. I should expect to find, this is a guess which I have not sufficient knowledge to verify, that the German, Russian and Italian languages have all deteriorated in the last 10 or 15 years as a result of dictatorship. But if thought corrupts language, language can also corrupt thought. A bad usage can spread by tradition and imitation, even among people who should and do know better. The debased language that I have been discussing in some ways was very convenient. Phrases like, are not an unjustifiable assumption, leaves much to be desired, would serve no good purpose, a consideration which we should do well to bear in mind, are a continuous temptation. A packet of aspirins always at one's elbow. Look back through this essay, and for certain you will find that I have again and again committed the very faults I am protesting against. By this morning's post, I have received a pamphlet dealing with conditions in Germany. The author tells me that he felt impelled to write it. I open it at random, and here is, and here is in Germany itself, and here is almost the first sentence I see. Quote, the Allies have an opportunity not only of achieving radical transformation of Germany's social and political structure in a way as to avoid a nationalistic reaction in Germany itself, but at the same time of laying the foundations of a cooperative and unified Europe. You see, he feels impelled to write. 
feels, presumably, that he has something new to say. And yet his words, like cavalry horses answering the bugle, group themselves automatically into the familiar dreary pattern. This invasion of one's mind by ready-made phrases, such as lay the foundations, achieve a radical transformation, can only be prevented if one is constantly on guard against them, and every such phrase anesthetizes a portion of one's brain. Nobody ever said it better, ladies and gentlemen. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. Ladies and gentlemen, George Orwell, Politics in the English Language. That was just three paragraphs. You can only imagine what the rest of it's like. Still as relevant today as it was when it was written 72 years ago. I do want to have a bit of fun. That's That's a wonderful paragraph to ruminate on. I mean, think about it. Just one more thing here. So this part particular, where he's making, where he's he's coming up coming up with political speech to defend the indefensible, right? To make the brutal seem acceptable, and this is what I was getting at. Like you know, and there's a certain level of immaturity that we the voters have when we look upon the political machine and political systems and and writing and opinion and everything everything bubbles on top of the three laws of politics getting power keeping power and keeping other people from taking power everything revolves around those those three orbits so little things like this right this is such a fantastic the way he puts it like it's, it's such it's such a, a rich yet yet you know tragic and brutal language that he uses, but it's it's so good. Like this, defenseless villages are bombarded from the air. The inhabitants driven out into the countryside. The cattle machine gunned. The hats the huts set on fire with incendiary bullets. This is called quote pacification, right? So take things like that. How what can you think of that we 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 talk about today? I'll, I'll give you a few right now. How about people trying to enter your country illegally? You call them undocumented migrants. How about instead of calling it the Department of War, the name was changed to the Department of Defence? Because nobody likes war. Everybody likes defence, right? Instead of, you know, the legislated theft of private property in South Africa, it would be called something along the lines of land appropriation, this kind of, you know, this kind of um, hijacking of language in order to present something that's brutal and ugly and unwanted as something that is acceptable and, you know, needed is constantly around us all the time, 24-7. And these people do it constantly. And they don't, and for the, for the most part, they don't even know that they're doing it. They're just subconsciously regurgitating the focus grouped language that they have been taught to write. They have been taught to write this way. They have been taught to speak this way. They're not speaking from the heart. They're not trying to be succinct. They're not trying to be honest. As Orwell said himself, uh, what was it? You know, truth, the, the, the major optical 
the the enemy of clear writing is insincerity, right? And they're being insincere. People who put unnecessarily large wo- words where they have no place in being, you should be wary of. I am constantly. Like, and don't get me wrong, I you know I I like a rich vocabulary. I enjoy somebody with a rich vocabulary, someone that, who can dazzle me with their wordplay. I always enjoy that, always have. But in terms of um, political writing, political speech, where it's not necessary to do so, then I'm always like, well, what are you getting at? George Carlin did speak of this, yes. He was a very wise man, George Carlin. But let's go from that to this. Let's go from that to this. Let me show you a little something here. Uh, Maybe we'll save that one for later. How groups like Proud Boys have a lot in common with radical Islam. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Proud Boys. Radical Islam. (laughs) This this is from the Australian taxpayer-funded... Uh, news service called the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, or as we like to call it, Australians Broadcasting Communism. Key Wizard, good to see you. Oh, you'll have to go back and watch the replay, Key Wizard. We were talking about politics in the English language. How the proud <laughs> groups like the Proud Boys have a lot in common with radical Islam. Uh, before I get too far, let's now do this. Face the Shredder. Yep. Time for the shredder. It's rock and roll. Okay. How how groups like Proud Boys. So it's not even the Proud Boys, it's how groups like Proud Boys. So it's all anybody. Anybody who may have some kind of, you know, distant, some kind of distant intellectual association with anything that might have something to do with the Proud Boys, you're like radical Islam now. <laughs> General Eaton says, I'm highlighting my copy as you go. Indubitably. <laughs> A young man filled with helplessness is drawn to a charismatic leader promising the return to a time when people like him ruled the world. Sound familiar? He asked, The author actually asked the audience, sound familiar? No, not particularly. Not particularly. Tell me, ask, answer me this, ladies and gentlemen. Does this sound familiar to you? A young man filled with helplessness is drawn to a charismatic leader promising the return to a time when people like him ruled the world. Does that sound familiar to anyone in this room? I've never heard that before. It's amazing because the comparison, here's, here's the other comparison. Sound familiar? How about this one? A precariously employed young man joins a group advocating for traditional gender roles and men no longer having to compete with women for work. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sound familiar? <laughs> Pardon me, this is one of the greatest things I've ever read. I'm going to put this on the fridge. <clears throat> See, in the first paragraph here, he is uh, talking about, of course, uh, somebody who may be, would you say, uh, enchanted with the more violent vestiges of radical Islam, for example. 
but look at the way he puts it. A young man filled with helplessness is drawn to a charismatic leader promising the return to a time when people like him ruled the world. What? Oh, you, you mean, actually, we know it's not a young man filled with helplessness often. Um, actually, a lot of the Western um, jihadis actually come from upper middle class white collar backgrounds. They're very educated. We know this for fact. Most of them are. I mean, shit. Um, bra- uh, bra- I nearly said Barack Obama. Um, Osama bin Laden, didn't he hold like, what was it, two or three degrees? Wasn't he a highly, very highly educated man? Doesn't sound like a man filled with helplessness. Drawn to a charismatic leader, promising a time when, to return to a time when people like him rule the world. Listen to this. Both scenarios describe the radicalization of a young man and their embrace of extremist ideology. So now, ladies and gentlemen, if you think, if, if you advocate for traditional gender roles, you are now espousing an extremist ideology. Literally. Advocating for traditional gender roles, extremist ideology. This is according to the Australian taxpayer-funded media outlet, the ABC. So, you know, if, if, you, if you want women to, you know, be, um, you know, in the home and raising the kids and being with the kids because those, few, those first few years are so very important for a child's development, for example, if you're a woman and you want to be a housewife, guess what? You're an extremist now. You're just like ISIS. You're just like radical Islam, ladies and gentlemen. Believe it or not. And both could apply to radical Islam or the kind of masculinist ideologies. <laughs> masculinist ideologies. What, what the hell is a masculinist ideology? <laughs> Let me ask you, if I wax my balls, am I no longer part of the masculinist ideology? Maybe this is my way out. Then Maybe this is the back door. Book me in. Book me in at the salon. I've got to dispense with my masculinist ideology. (laughs) Ridiculous. Highly educated, but belief system makes them unintelligent. Gavin's face. (laughs) It's a very good picture, isn't it? Represented by far-right male-only groups like the Proud Boys. Well, I guess, you know, if you're advocating for traditional gender roles, then you're probably less likely to start a group called the Proud Boys and let women in. I I mean, hey, this isn't the Boy Scouts, right? This ain't the Boy Scouts. We can't just let the girls in to the Boy Scouts. According to the head of Institute of Religion, Politics and Society at the Australian Catholic University, Dr. Joshua Ruse. They have far more in common with each other, he told Hack. Isn't that an appropriate, uh, appropriately named website, Hack? I think that's fantastic. Uh, let me go to a couple of quotes here. Listen to this. These groups, because these groups are amongst the first to call out Islam as misogynistic and homophobic, and yet they practice the same forms of discrimination. <laughs> yeah. Yep. The Proud Boys uh, practice the exact same kinds of misogynistic and homophobic behaviour that they do in uh, radical Islam. For example, like 
uh, you know, Gavin McInnes isn't on trial now for some kind of, uh, you know, assault misdemeanor, getting involved in a scuffle on a street. He's on trial right now for throwing gay people off roofs, I assume. <clears throat> same kind of discrimination. The Proud Boys don't like um, American women dressed in bikinis. No, they want their women covered up at all times. It's the exact same kind. It's the exact same kind. There's no difference. Now, groups like the Proud Boys have a lot in common with radical Islam. These groups, because of their origins in terms of alienation, anxiety, and distancing from the wider mainstream community, actually have more in common with Western Islamic State foreign fighters than they do with mainstream political discourse. This guy is telling you what mainstream is. He literally considers traditional gender roles to be a, quote, extremist ideology. Extremist ideology. The, 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 the doctor, the good doctor, the professor, the professor of religion and politics and society is who believes that traditional gender roles are, quote, extremist ideology is telling you what mainstream means. <laughs> good luck. Good luck, Doc. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I believe in traditional gender roles. You extremist. That's so not mainstream. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, that's just like ISIS. Whoa, buddy, slow down. I'm going to tell you what the mainstream is. There's involvement in some form of criminality. There's a sense of helplessness and despair and lack of leadership in their life. (laughs) So... (laughs) If you <clears throat> if you don't have a problem with the Proud Boys, you lack a kind of leadership in your life. That's filled out by this narrative. If you're a young white guy, the narrative might be alt-right Proud Boys narrative or the United Patriots Front narrative. If you're a young Muslim guy, it might be the Islamic State narrative. Ah, oh, it's very similar. Very, very similar stuff. <laughs> If taxpayers didn't pay these professors, nobody would. I'm telling you, nobody would. I wouldn't I wouldn't pay this guy to clean toilets. He'd want to sit down and tell me how the toilet feels. What what the what the what the what the spiritual component, how the how the person shitting in the toilet lacked leadership when they dumped a lump. You know, I'm not paying for this. I don't want this. What the hell are you talking about, man? There's one line here that I have to find. It's so funny. Where is it? Sorry, this is very professional. Very professional stuff. Here we go. Some have called the Proud Boys the foot soldiers of modern American fascism. Yeah, well, some people believe that the moon is made out of cheese. Who cares? Who gives a fuck? Some people have called the Proud Boys the foot soldiers of modern American fascism. Probably the people that he converses with in the coffee room at the university that he comes from. <laughs> probably the people who were, who were writing this article, quoting him. They probably agree 100%. But listen to this. 
these people have read Mein Kampf and the history and origins of National Socialism, it would be an absolute mistake not to not assume that that's what they've read, that's what they're inspired by, and that's what they're attempting to achieve. Wow. Whoa, baby. <laughs> you have to take a second to break down this, this quote. This is a doctor putting his reputation on the line. Listen again. These people have read Mein Kampf and the history and origins of National Socialism. It would be an absolute mistake to not assume that's what they've read, that's what they're inspired by, and that's what they're attempting to achieve. Okay, anybody who's read Mein Kampf is now a Nazi. There you go. Done. Done. Uh, hey, I tell you what, I, I read a lot of CNN. I guess, I guess I'm Brian Stelter now. It would be a mistake not to assume that because Boogie Bumper reads a lot of CNN that he agrees wholeheartedly with Brian Stelter and he is trying to do exactly what Brian Stelter wants to achieve. He understands the history of fake news. He's trying to achieve it. Right? Have you ever heard anything so ridiculous in your life? It's absolutely insane. Number one, how does he even know that they've read Mein Kampf? Number two, why can't you read Mein Kampf? Is is like is this guy's a professor? I suppose we. I suppose I thought we're supposed to like you know soak in as much literature as we possibly can from all sources. No, 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 no. Anybody who read Mein Kampf's just they just turn instantly into a Nazi, like the Wolfman, like an Aryan Wolfman. So you read Mein Kampf, you get to the last page, you slam it down, there's a full moon, and you go, Heil Hitler! You know, like, <laughs> and you go goose-stepping out of the lounge room. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> what they're trying to do is build effective paramilitary organisations and gain legitimacy and then have them become an arm of the state. McInnes wants to become an arm of the Republicans and he sees no better opportunity for this than under Trump. Wow. Yep. Yep. Gavin McInnes wants to become part of a totalitarian regime, according to this guy, this professor, teaching your children, taking your tax dollars. Wow. The best part here was the comments. And you can see what we're dealing with here. There was one very good comment that somebody wrote. And this will this will show to you the uh, futility of trying to um, present concise and common sense arguments to people who have no interest in reading them. If I can find the particular comment. Like, nobody agrees, really. Nobody agrees. Like, see... People, people who are saying that this is a ridiculous article and you don't understand the Proud Boys, they will do multi-paragraph explanations. They'll go through bullet points. And people who agree with the article will say things like, like this. Wow, Trumpers are busy today. Maybe you're not fascist or racist, but you sure sound like them. <laughs> I, can see, I can see you put a, a lot of thought in this, into this rebuttal, comrade. I can see you've been pining on this all day, this work. Proud boys, bunch of pansies, 
ignorant, racist, scum, gangbangers. You have no place in this society. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it wonderful? I find it absolutely glorious. But there you go. Politics in the English language, false equivalents, dying metaphors, how groups like Proud Boys have a lot in common with radical Islam. All right. Happy holidays, ladies and gentlemen. It's your turn. It's your turn. Let's have some fun. Why have millennials stopped celebrating Thanksgiving? I I didn't know they have. Were you aware of this? Did you know that millennials have stopped celebrating Thanksgiving? I didn't know. Freedom Forever says, I have a degree in history. Does that mean any book I've read? Yes. 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 (laughs) Does that mean any book I've read makes me the person who wrote the book or the person in the book? It might be the person in the book. Um, the great, in my opinion, the greatest uh, history book ever written is uh, the fall of the Roman Empire, right? Because it's like, what is it, like fucking 20 volumes or something? It's absolutely insane. Took months. But it's so beautifully written. It's still a classic today. Um, I guess I guess that makes me Julius Caesar now. I, that's okay. Fantastic. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be anyone else. They can't cook. No, did they ever start? I don't know. I don't know. Why have millennials stopped celebrating Thanksgiving? But this is... So now we have to get into very serious discussion here. There is a moment in the 1993 comedy Adam's Family Values that sums up the view a lot of millennial progressives have developed about Thanksgiving. Does anybody see the irony that we're talking about millennial views on Thanksgiving, yet we're quoting a movie from 1993? It's like 25 years ago. (laughs) Most millennials aren't 25 years old. Most millennials weren't even born when this movie came out. What the fuck are you talking about? You know, I'm going to make an argument that millennials don't care about Thanksgiving, and I'm going to use as a reference a movie that came out before most of them were born. The character of Wednesday Adams, who I had a um, a schoolboy crush on, Kimmy Jong Un knows this. Kimmy Jong Un is in the chat. She knows Christina Ricci when she was Wednesday Adams was my my prepubescent crush. You know, it wasn't a sex thing. It was like I just love her brain and the fact that she hates everything. I found fa- I found it incredibly attractive when I was a young man. Well, a boy. Let's let's be honest, a boy. The character of Wednesday Adams, Christina Ritchie, is forced to play an obsequious Pocahontas in a summer camp play about Thanksgiving and, instead of delivering the scripted lines, goes on a diatribe about the racist origins of the holiday. Quote, you have taken the land which is rightfully ours, Ritchie Adams protests. Years from now, my people will be forced to live in mobile homes on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. We will sell our bracelets by the roadsides. You will play golf and enjoy hot whore devour. My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stick shifts. My gods, the gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims, especially Sarah Miller. Aside from highlighting the ambivalence apparently felt by director Barry Sonnenfeld and writer Paul Rudnick about the underlying history behind the Thanksgiving holiday, despite attempting to pillory racism, this scene actually plays on a number of racist stereotypes itself. Wow! (laughs) There you have it. 
again, if you thought um, the you know the left wings you know salon type press of the world couldn't go any further down the rabbit hole, they are actually saying that a you know a scene in a movie where a character actually goes on the side of the American Indian and says like Thanksgiving Day is a horrible racist tradition. They're actually saying that her doing that is actually racist. <laughs> what isn't racist now? What the fuck isn't racist anymore? I don't even know. I don't. Is, is me? Is breathing racist? What the fuck am I supposed to do? <laughs> Again, insanity. Despite attempting to pillory racism, despite attempting to pillory racism, so not only is this a bad movie review twenty five years after it's needed, it's also being used in a commentary about racism and being described, even though it is against racism, being described as racist itself. Despite attempting to pillory racism, this scene actually plays on a number of racist stereotypes itself. The caricature depiction of Native Americans in that monologue, the subsequent vow to scalp you and burn your village to the ground, and other offensive depictions. Depictions. Like, so, okay, so scalpings never happened. Burning villages to the ground never happened. Like, none of this ever happened. That's, just, that's a racist depiction of something else. Ah, okay. Okay, that's why it's racist, because you hate reality. Because you hate facts, you hate truth. So any anything anything that in any way depicts reality, I, I guess it's racist because it makes you feel uncomfortable. So uh, after reading that, I thought, well, now I absolutely have to go back and watch the fucking thing, and I think we should all watch it together <laughs> because apparently it's even though it's Wednesday, Adams going on a tirade, a rant about how Thanksgiving Day is racist. Apparently, she's being racist as well by doing it. Believe it or not. I shit you not. You wouldn't believe it if I told you. But here we are. This occasion to celebrate a seminal event in American history. This year, we depict perhaps the most important day in our shared past, the first Thanksgiving. A day for maize, the Native American word for corn, a terrific turkey dinner, (laughs) and brotherhood. So, white meat. And dark meat. White meat Take and dark it meat. Away. <laughs> Don't call attention to other races. Don't call attention to yours either if you're white. Dancing turkeys, isn't it wonderful? Waspy parents here. Look at all these wasps. Eat us because we're good and dead. But man or red man, don't eat smoke or Chop off my legs and put them in your mouth. Eat me. Saute the barbecue. Eat me. We want some bread for now or food. We won't stay fresh for very long. So eat us before we finish. Absolutely, Millie. I am so glad we invited the Chippewas to join us for this holiday meal. Remember, these savages are our guests. <laughs> we must not be surprised at 
any of their strange customs. After all, they have not had our advantages, such as fine schools, libraries full of books, shampoo. <laughs> See, this is social Ow. this is social justice warriorism in nineteen ninety three, and the author of that salon article is too fucking stupid to recognise it. Like how you can't get more social justice than that. Oh, they didn't have any of our advantages, the finest schools and education. Oh. Like that that's that's literally that's you could you could say that social justice uh theory, social justice doctrine is lifted from this scene, which is also simultaneously racist, which presents quite the conundrum, comrade. Because if the ra- if the scene is racist because it plays on various American Indian stereotypes, yet it also declares the absolute undisputable truth that the white people are privileged, then what the fuck are we supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? I don't know. Is it racist? Is it is it true? It's true and racist. It's racist and true. Is it more racist than it is true or is it more true than it is racist? Is racism true? Oh, my God. I'm falling down. I'm tumbling down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Did you ever wonder why these people's minds are bent into a pretzel? Now, now you know. You see how complicated life is on the other side of the fence? The grass ain't always greener. In fact, uh, you know that old adage, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side? Yes, it's greener on the other side because it's being mowed by a Mexican undocumented migrant worker. And you should feel guilty for that. I am Pocahontas, a Chippewa maiden. I'm Indian. Enough said. <laughs> and I am Running Bear, betrothed to Pocahontas. In the play. In the play. 20 grand for summer camp. He's Mr. Woo Woo. We have brought a special gift for this holiday feast. I am a turkey. Kill me. What a thoughtful gift why you are as civilized as we except we wear shoes and have last names welcome to our table our new primitive friends thank you sarah miller you're the most beautiful person thank you sarah I've ever miller seen. your hair is the color of the sun your skin is like fresh milk she has and insatiable sarcasm you. stop sit wait what? We cannot break bread with you. <laughs> huh? Becky, what's going on? Wednesday! You have taken the land which is rightfully ours. Uh, it's, like I'm, it's like I'm a 12-year-old Years boy in now, love all over again. My people will be forced to it's live amazing. in mobile homes, on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. We will sell our bracelets by the roadside. <laughs> you will play golf and enjoy hot or dirt. How cold is she? My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stick shifts. The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims. Especially Sarah Miller. Gary, she's changing the words. And for all these reasons, I've decided to scalp you. And burn your village to the ground. TV. My Ladies and gentlemen, Zero, the most dangerous bands on Periscope. Thanks for joining us. 
Batmobile. He's not a teen player. He's a special child, but he needs friends. He needs friends like this. He's a special child, but he needs friends. Look what they do to him. Fantastic. Before I had armpit hair, this was the hottest shit going. Wednesday Adams. Doesn't get much better than that. All right. Um, all right. Well, I'll play one more little serious, semi-serious clip. Then I've got to take a little pee break. I've got to go to the little boy's room. Just so you know. And then we'll just do fun stuff. Because it is a holiday for you. You white privileged <laughs> oppressive genocidal maniacs you <laughs> I hope you enjoy your holiday while the Indians are rotting in their multi-million dollar casino complexes have some empathy alright thought this was pretty cool from the same network that brought us that this last weekend, article Victorians actually head to a state election with Labor fighting to hold on to government Parties, of course, look for whatever edge they can get. And these days, that edge increasingly comes in the form of your personal data. This your personal data. Producer Andy Burns. It's Sunday morning and Greens candidate Tim Reid is pounding the streets in the Victorian state seat of Brunswick. So we're up to 12. In his hand is a walk list of all the voters he's targeting today to vote for him. So why numbers 8, 15, 7A? Why those numbers? So if you're not on the electoral roll, your house doesn't get doorknocked. Right. And there are quite a lot of non-citizens in Brunswick. Right, OK. So you're just hitting, hitting electoral roll, basically. Yep. Like all political parties in Australia, the Greens have access to the public electoral roll for campaigning, so they know your name, age and address before they knock on your door. I'm Tim Reid, I'm the Greens candidate for Brunswick, and I'm just... By the end of this conversation, as well as Rachel Quinton's basic information, the Greens will have also recorded the issues she's interested in and how she's likely to vote. That information is sent to a database at party headquarters for subsequent campaigns. So far, so harmless, perhaps. But it's what political parties can do beyond the door knock that may give you pause for thought. I think people would be surprised to see the build-up of data that they've got and the specific profile that you can build up of a potential... Hi, Monica. Thanks for joining us. Long gone are the days of simply trying to win you over with billboards and a chat at the polling booth. This is where we're headed. Political parties are now using powerful computing platforms to aggregate multiple sources of data to predict the issues you'll care about in an election. Liberal have... uh... (laughs) Not only to predict the issues you'll care about in an election, but when they can introduce certain stimuli into the population via, you know, mainstream media, social media, you know, cult-like information circles, echo chambers, bubble effect, amplification, they, they take note of all of this stuff. So not only can they predict the issues you'll care about in the future, they can make you care about things in the future. Because everybody, like online, everybody's online presence. This is why I recommend, if, if, you, if you don't take anything out of tonight, take this. 
you should always have two web pages open on your browser at all times. One should be how to bake Christian cakes and the other one should be like hot transsexual sex and say, all right, algorithmy, you fuckers, <laughs> predict this. Right? <laughs> you should always have Christian baking and transsexual sex open at all times on your browser and then go, okay, tell me what I'm thinking. Tell me who I am. <laughs> what am I searching for? <laughs> what, do, what do I care about? Go on, do it, do it, right? But uh, all of these things, it, it's, it's not only predicting the issues you'll care about, they can make the issue. They can force you, they can funnel you into a kind of, um, would you say, it's, it's called predictive behavioral programming, right? It's like an extension of biometrics because you you – you look at this page, you read this source, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. You, you're this age group, you're this demographic, you're, you vote this way, you look at these web pages, you read these news sources. Then it, it's amazing. Like once upon a time, um, people had to sort through your garbage to figure out your, your psychology and your personality, and it was very rough. These days, we give, the, we give all the information to them. We tell them exactly who we are in our actions online, in our data. That's why all of Western governments have already signed into law like various data capture policies, like the kind of shit that never gets reported in corporate media. Yeah, yeah, we're just recording everyone. That's fine, you know, it's not a problem. Oh, we're doing it to protect you. We're protecting you. Yeah. You know, the good old protection meme where every politician comes out and says, oh, we're going to protect you, protect you, protect you, protect you. We need new laws so we can protect you, even though the reality is laws don't protect you from anything because if laws protected you from things, then there would be no drink driving, there would be no murder, there would be no rape, there would be no armed robbery, there would be no break and enter, there would be no jaywalking, there would be no check fraud, there would be no mail fraud, there would be no credit card fraud, there would be no nothing. The reality is laws don't protect you from shit. Laws prosecute people who break them. That's it. There is no protection thanks to a law. Laws don't protect you from anything. Laws turn actions into criminal actions and then prosecute those who are now criminals. Rightly or wrongly. Oh, the NSA, I you know, down here it's ASIO. There's, there's whatever, whatever the you know, the apparatus is in whatever Western government it exists in. And they're all doing data capture now. And all of that information can be harvested and mined. And, you know, they, in many cases, they can know you better than you know yourself. The, uh, the, the only, you can't stop it. You can't do anything to avoid it because uh, so much of our daily life now, so much of our everyday life is conducted online. Right? Like... <clears throat> You know, once upon a time, you had the option of being paid in cash. Can you even get paid in cash now or do you have to have a bank account? And if you have to have a bank account, then automatically you've got an online bank account. And if you've got an online bank account, then your transactions are floating around in the uh, internet world. Your transactions are in the ether. And, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as anyone else. Uh, re- reject the urge to pay on card. You should take out cash and pay with cash, baby. Big data, baby, says Franklin. Absolutely. 
but you should reject the urge to pay with a card. You should try wherever possible to pay with cash. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm guilty myself. Like, I'll, you know, it's convenient. Just pull out the card, go whack, you know, pay on the card. Yeah, I'm out of there in five seconds. I don't want to carry a lot of cash around. But everything you pay for, where you bought it, what time you bought it, your, 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 your spending patterns, your viewing patterns, your, your movie rentals, the websites you look at, who you vote for, everything, your social media presence, it's all, it can all be sucked down into one, one train and they can predict if we do this, then this person will think that. If we do, if we introduce this into the system, if this story comes out, this person will vote this way. So it's not just caring about. You know, it's not just they can figure out what you care about. They can make you care about things. Because think, if mass media has access to this information, then they can drum up like they can put out a story. It can be complete fabrication. So they can say based on your, you know, your the the sites you view what you purchase, the news you intake, your social media interactions, they can say that you're a lefty person. You know, you're very lefty. You want open borders and stuff. So they know if they introduce, but you're, you're kind of on the fence. You're not a, you're not a regular voter, but you, you're kind of like a sympathetic lefty. So they know if they can introduce a story where it's like, ICE agents kill people at Mexican border, Right. Uh, migrant migrant NGOs reporting migrants being shot by um, American border agents. You might race out to the ballot. We got to stop this. Doesn't have to, doesn't even have to be true. They know they can introduce certain stimuli into your into your you know online environment, and then force you into doing certain things. Predictive behavioral programming. Learn it. And also classical conditioning is another thing. The pattern of life. Right, let's carry on. I th- there's, three, there's three minutes and a half, three and a half minutes. I think I can let this play and then go for a whiz. Yeah, a platform called Feedback, um, which is run by a company called Parakelion. Uh, and Labor have one called Campaign Central, which they've built... Um, over years and years of um, mostly constituent data and then increasingly various data sets that they're controlling. Here's how political parties can perfectly legally build up a picture of you. Take swinging voter Bridget Cottrell. They get her name, age and address through the electoral roll. They can predict her views on tax policy because they know her estimated credit score and income based on where she lives. She'll likely care about childcare policy because she entered a kid's furniture competition and that company can share that data. And Labor knows she liked one of their posts on Facebook. So when Bridget is contacted by a political party, it's possible the message she receives will be tailor-made to win her over. But why do they knock on your door and not your neighbours? Because beneath the surface, there are people. No, not just people data scientists. This year, the Victorian Liberals have upped the ante, reportedly buying in powerful American data software i360 after the South Australian Liberals used it in their election and won. i360 didn't respond to several approaches from 7.30. i360. i360 um, and a range of those third-party providers will sell their services on the basis of 
providing data sets that they already have, mashing them with your existing data, and then providing you with a very targeted output of who you should be going after. Where do they get their data sets, for example? Do they get them from consumer information? Unfortunately, this is the big black hole that we actually don't know. What we do know is plenty of companies are selling that data, but the information isn't about you personally. It's sold as what's known as a segment. Now, that's a large chunk of anonymised data about people who have something in common, say, buying nappies. Now, what the parties can do is cross-reference that information with other data, like the census, to build up a detailed model of how people with particular characteristics will likely vote. How useful that information is, is one question. How ethical its use is, is another. Both the Labor and Liberal parties in Victoria declined to speak to 7.30 for this story and also didn't answer detailed questions about their data use, including whether they buy consumer data. The main concern is that political parties are exempt from the Privacy Act. Oh, that they felt are not good. beholden to the that same rules good. that other people are in terms of whether or not they're respecting and protecting the individual data or information about Australian citizens. Yeah, the protection meme. Baraka. The protection meme. All right, I want to show you some fun stuff. Thanks for sticking with us. Man, it's one of the best, best whizzes I've ever taken. I was I was very disappointed this week. Thanks for sticking with us, by the way. Thanks for joining us if you just joined in. If you've already joined us and then left, well, sucks to be you. But I was very disappointed this week. Um, I was promised a dust storm to end dust storms. I made it back in time. Just, just. I am going to have to make myself another red wine cocktail, though. Mm. Oh, you've got no, you've got no idea. Too much information, says Freedom Forever. <laughs> I think I cracked the porcelain, mate. Uh, Australians to cop everything from thunder snow to heat waves as mild weather as wild. Well, mild. It's very, it's, very, it's very similar, but it's not really. Mild and wild. Wild weather lashes the country. See, I thought today, actually yesterday, I thought yesterday I was promised like a big red dust storm to come over Sydney like it did back in 2009. And I'm going to show you what it was like in 2009. I remember it. I remember waking up in the morning and walking out the, into my backyard going, what the fuck is going on? Like, I thought I had an eye problem. I'm not joking. Like, I thought I'd done some kind of damage to my eyes while I was asleep. And I walked out. And I'm like, what the hell is this? And it wasn't until I walked out and, like, went up to the table out the back and, like, wiped my hand across it and I had red dust on my hand. I was like, oh, thank God I'm not going blind. It was that bad. It was that serious. I thought, like, I've lost the yellow and blue filter from my eyes or something. Thunder snow. Thank you for asking, Kiwis. Yes. So that, that I thought it was funny. So not only in Australia can, can things kill you, like spiders, snakes, various kinds of animals. Koalas will probably eat you to death. Uh, we also have thunder snow. <laughs> Do you want to know what thunder snow is? <laughs> All right, here's somebody, um, here's a young Australian, looks like a girl, I think, with the pink, uh, dancing in the thunder snow. <clears throat> Victoria, 
As Sydney and Melbourne deal with gale force winds and flight delays, other parts of Victoria received a rare dumping of November snow. Now, you've got to understand here the seasons are reversed, so November for us is leading into summer. So it's actually summer for us next week, and if you know anything about Australia, you know that summer here gets really fucking hot, like over 100 repeatedly. It's really fucking hot down here over summer, over Christmas. So it's snowing in November. Despite being a week away from summer, the snowfields in Victoria and southern New South Wales were hit by thunder snow. <laughs> Under, <laughs> I just love the name, thunder snow. It sounds like a wrestler. It sound, that's what I would name a wrestler from Iceland. Thunder snow. This week, Kane versus thunder snow. Under very rare circumstances, if the mid-levels of the troposphere are exceptionally cold and even temperatures at the surface are below freezing, it can lead to rising air, Sky News meteorologist Tom Saunders said. The thunder-snow phenomenon is extremely rare, occurring only once or twice in a year. Mount Hotham received a dumping overnight with 37 centimetres of snow, which I believe would be around 14 inches, 13 inches, something like that. Somebody can correct me. Someone in the chat can correct me. I think 37 centimetres is around 13 to 14 inches in the old money. Already seen across the higher peaks. Heavy snow will continue over the weekend just before Aussies head into December. I've been thunder snowed. (laughs) So reading this story, like I said, uh, we were promised like a really big dust storm that we got back in 2009, which is actually the year I got married, which is probably why I remember it. Sorry, Boogie, sounds like a fat albino exotic dancer. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, mainly the gentlemen. <laughs> I don't know why the ladies are in this strip club. You shouldn't be here. If you are, you should be buying drinks. And not sitting up at the stage. Gentlemen, for your viewing pleasure, we introduce Thunder Snow. Oh, yeah. Uh-uh-uh. That girl can work it. That bitch is ice cold. Ice cold. So, yeah. Um... Let me show you this. This is a news report from 2009. And can I just give a special tip of the hat to the the reporter doing this report who is obviously so cute and nervous and adorable that she can't help but constantly fidget with her clothes and stuff, even though she's doing a live news cross, which is very amateur hour. But again, like I, I, I'm, more, I'm more comfortable with amateur hour than I am with, you know, overly professional. So <laughs> dust storms back. This is back in 09. Well, these wind gusts, which you can see are still buffeting me here, of up to 100 kilometres an hour, they've really helped clear away that dirty red cloud which uh, covered the city this afternoon, uh, early this morning, this afternoon. Dirty red cloud. Uh, looking forward, I mean, uh, only people who are aged over 70 would She's have seen so such an event like today. But for the rest of us, it was certainly history in the making. Sydney woke to a burning crimson Look at that. sky. Landmarks That's reduced what it was like to back scarlet in 09, silhouettes, baby. leaving many thinking they'd arrived on the red planet. I did think, ooh, it looks like the aliens or the end of the world might have happened. Not since 1939 has Sydney seen such a dust storm and it was a moment to mark. 
for a photographer is just great. That sounds like it's like people over seventy are dying of like mass inhalation of dust. Uh, the you know ferries are being cancelled. No, nobody can catch a plane. It's chaos around the city. People have to get like there's dust all over everything. It's disgusting. People with asthma can't walk outside. And this asshole on the news is like, yeah, well, when you're a photographer, this is fucking great. Man. <laughs> See, this is why I love being an Aussie. He doesn't care about anyone else. He's like, no, I'm a photographer. This is amazing. <laughs> Take photos of the bridge. Take photos of the bridge, mate. As traffic dragged through the dust, ferry services were also cancelled. We've got severely reduced visibility. It did. And with an 1,100-tonne vessel. And see, I live, I live, technically I'm in Sydney, but I'm in the part of Sydney that is the most, like, I'm right on the edge, like, the boundary of Sydney. So it takes me about an hour to get to, like, the Harbour Bridge and stuff from where I live. Like, if you go five minutes from my house, you're in farms and stuff. So even out here, like right out in the sticks of Sydney, um, it still looked like it, it was like literally like you're on Mars. It was insane. I can't describe it. Like I said, I thought I woke up. I thought I had an eye problem. Like that's how red it was. Everything was red, bright red for like the whole day. It was amazing. We need to see what's in front of us. At the airport, flights were diverted and delayed. Oh, I just want to get home. No, <laughs> not worried at all about flying in this. See, look at these assholes. How about the entitlement? Like the pilot, the pilot doesn't know whether he's on Earth or Mars. There is the most epic dust storm that's ever swept across our beautiful city that's ever been, and you are like, oh, I don't care. I don't get put everyone's life at risk. I don't care if the pilot can't see. I just want to get home. It's like the photographer. He couldn't he couldn't care less about anything else going on. He's like, well, if you're a photographer, it's a fucking great day. What are you talking? This is the best day of my life. <laughs> Again, that's why I like being an Aussie. There's no need for this faux and fake and phony compassion and empathy for other people. It's like, no, fuck no. I just want to get home. Hey, this is beautiful. I love taking pictures in this. <laughs> You don't have to pretend. <laughs> I want to get out of here. The person I'm supposed to be meeting has been diverted to Brisbane and was coming in at 8.30 and is now coming in at <laughs> 10 past 9. Oh, it's such an inconvenience, isn't it, The dust spread right darling? up the state's coast from Canberra yesterday to Wollongong Those reds, today. we're now reds. It passed through Newcastle and arrived at Coffs Harbour mid-morning. Even the Blue Mountains turned red. What's caused the uh, uh, the whole situation was a very, very powerful cold front that swept across uh, southeastern Australia over the last 24 hours. It's generated uh, strong winds uh, and more particularly persistent winds. Scientists from Dustwatch are predicting that this is the worst... Du- Here we go. This is the problem. This is the problem. Can't we just all enjoy a dust storm? Like, obviously, it's an inconvenience. Obviously, it's a rare thing. Why do politicians have to grandstand in Parliament? Like, this is a local politician at the time, John Robertson, from the Labor Party. Why do politicians have to make speeches about it? Right? Forgive me for asking, but isn't dust bad for aircraft engines? Well, I I assume it's not good. (laughs) I assume it's not good. I mean, jet engines run on air, right? Like, they suck air in and then it 
spins in a turbine and it pushes the air out, which propels the aircraft. So if the air is being broken up by large dust particles, I imagine it wouldn't be good for the internal components of said jet engine. But what do I know? I'm just an average peasant. I, I just like taking photos. As a photographer, this is fucking brilliant. Yeah, fly the plane. I don't care. I just want to get home. <laughs> People are idiots, you know. But why can't we experience like this rare earth event as one? You know, why do politics, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about? Like when there's a heat wave, right? Just say there's a heat wave. Why do politicians have to come out and like, you'll hear it on the news, right? Even in America, you'll hear this shit all the time. They'll come out and say, the local government authority has put out a warning about a heat wave and they want people to drink more water and try to stay out of the sun. It's like, really? 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 Well, I can't, I can't tell if it's fucking hot anymore. Like is this is this how much are we are we so overgoverned that I can no longer walk outside and feel the sun on my face and go shit I better bring some water on my own like I can't, I don't have that ability anymore what are there just like mounds there's piles of dead bodies in the streets if only the government told us to stay out of the sun none of this would have happened like what the fuck is going on in Western civilization you know we like to, we like to laugh. We like to point fun at other cultures. We like to like point at the Arabs and the Muslims in the Middle East and go, oh, they're so silly. They've got all these backward ideas. I bet none of their politicians have to tell them that it's fucking hot outside. Like, they must look at us and go, these people are right for the picking. They don't even know what the fucking weather is. They don't even know to take a drink when they're thirsty. How weak are these people? <laughs> Seriously. Why are, politician, why are politicians telling us to take a drink when it's hot? Don't you have anything better to do? Seriously, what is your job? What is your job description? What are you even getting paid for at this point? If you don't know to stay out of the sun when it's really hot and take a drink when it's really hot, when you're really thirsty, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm, at that point, you're pushing the limit. Like, you may have given up your right to survive at that point. I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be brutal. But if you don't know to drink when you're thirsty and stay out of the sun when it's really hot, I don't know what I can do for you. I don't know what a press release is going to help. I don't even know if a press release can help you. Short of locking you in a refrigerator, what the fuck can we do to keep you alive? You know, bashing on the door of the refrigerator. Let me out. I want to die in the sun. I don't want to even have a drink of water. Like, what, what the hell are we supposed to do? <laughs> People are so dumb. <clears throat> See, are we dumb or are we letting the politicians treat us like we were dumb? It's a chicken and an egg thing. I don't even know at this point. If if you need to sit there and listen to a politician tell you that it's hot outside, you need to take water and stay out of the sun, then you are dumb. If you allow a politician to waste your money, your taxpayer money, funding their salary so they can do press releases saying that it's really hot outside, you need to take uh, take a drink of water and stay out of the sun, then you're dumb. Like, we're dumb. You know what I mean? If they think that they're doing a great service to society by telling people to stay out of the sun when it's fucking hot, they're dumb. <laughs> I, th- I think the moral of the story is everyone's dumb. So. 
storm to hit the state since the 1960s and estimates 75,000 tonnes of dust coming off the coast every hour. Tons. From snowboards to surfboards, every exercise and activity across the state affected and precautions had to be taken. I walk up and down this street all day and it's um, it's not fun when I've already got asthma and hay fever. It is. Oh, if only a politician had told him to stay out of the fucking street. There's a, if, if only a politician had to come on, on on the TV in the morning and said, by the way, if you've got asthma, be careful because there's a dust storm, he might have survived. What a fucking tragedy. All right. Here's a fun one for you. <laughs> I tell you, we're going to have fun. Fuck it. Politics can wait. Politics will be there tomorrow. Farmer's goat gives birth to half pig, half human creature sparking curse fears. The unusual... <laughs> The un- this this might be a little too sick for this time of night. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You tell me. Should we go here? Should we go there? Are you ready for this? Y'all ready for this? I don't know if this is up your alley or not. I don't even know your alleys. Do you have an alley? Do you mind if I back my garbage truck right up your alley and dump a whole pile of shit in there? Because that's where we're going. This is where we're headed. Farmer's goat gives birth to half pig, half human. <laughs> Gypsy's already like, what the fuck? I already saw like five people just instantly left the room. <laughs> yes, yes. Maybe I should start every show with the half pig, half human story. Then we, then we can dispense with the, with the you know, the, the, the phonies. Inst- <laughs> Who invited me to this? I I thought this was a serious show. I thought we were going to discuss things like MAGA and Donald Trump and communism. What the fuck is this talk about half pig, half human? I don't want to talk about this. This is disgusting. This is evil. This is demonic. Get me the hell out of here. Who invited me to this? I don't want any part of this. (laughs) We'll start every show with the... From now on, we're starting every show with half pig, half human. Uh, the, the the most amazing thing in this headline, it's not the half pig, half human for me. It's that a goat gave birth to it. How the fuck does a goat give birth to a half pig, half human? The only explanation I could come up with was that the goat was artificially inseminated with a half pig, half human embryo. Because even like, so if a human fucks a goat and the goat gives birth, it's going to be a half human, half goat. If a pig fucks a goat, it's going to be a half goat, half pig. But how does a half pig, half human come out of a goat? <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> how does that even happen? How is that even possible? That's like that's like a Roger Stone orgy right there. <laughs> what the actual fuck? <laughs> Warning, graphic images. My favorite kind of graphic images. My favourite kind of images. The unusual creature was born by caesarean section on a farm in the Philippines earlier this month, but locals worried it's a cursed mutant devil. Do you want to see the mutant devil? If you tell me that there was a half pig, half human that came out of a goat and the locals think it's a mutant devil, of course I'm going to press play. Of course I have to see it. Of of course I, I need to see this footage. So, like, why wouldn't I? This is your trigger warning. I see another three people have already left the room. This is fantastic. We're culling. We're culling those. (laughs) 
<laughs> better ask a politician, yes. Someone someone from uh, the government better come out and announce to us what this is all about. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to make sen- any sense of it. I'm, I, okay, I'm giving you trigger warnings here. Are you ready? You ready for this? All right, let's rock and roll with the half pig, half human that came out of a goat, which is a cursed mutant devil. Should be fun. Bring your, bring your kids. Wake, the, wake your kids up if they're not awake yet. It's kind of like the marshmallow man of the animal world, isn't it? Another thing that just occurred to me, how how can it be that uh, people living in a remote village in the Philippines can uh, witness a birth of a half-human, half-pig from a goat, claim that it's a mutant devil, quote-unquote, yet take out their iPhone and film it? Like, like, wouldn't the iPhone... Wouldn't the iPhone in some way necessarily create the environment where it's impossible to think that this is a half-pig, half-human mutant devil? Like, couldn't you just Google half pig, half half human mutant devil and be done with it at that point? <laughs> like, why are you still believing that this is a curse on the village or something? Like, you, you, you see what I mean? If If you believe that half pig, half human things can be born from goats in remote villages that are actually in reality mutant devils sent to curse your village... Why do you have iPhones? Do you see how one doesn't necessarily go to the other? <laughs> you see what I'm saying here? Are you with me? I don't get it. <laughs> here we are embracing the, you know, the, the most modern technology available to man, the smartphone. We have the world of we have the world at our fingertips and all of the accumulated knowledge that we could ever have. Oh, hang on. My goat just gave birth to a half pig, half human. I bet it's because where our village is cursed. What? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, let's carry on with the weird thing. Oh, I can't I can't make it bigger without fundamentally changing the screen. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put this on the tweet out list. So remind me at the end of the show. We've got uh politics in the English language on the tweet list and the <laughs> that, that's an that's an eclectic that's an eclectic grouping of links. That'll really throw <clears throat> pardon me, that'll really throw off the AI programmers of our political tyranny, won't it? Remember my advice, always keep open at all times two two windows, one with how to bake a Christian cake and one and the other one 
uh, tra- hot transsexual sex. You'll never be predicted in any kind of algorithm. Two, politics in the English language and farmer's goat gives birth to half pig, half human. Uh, we're we're going to beat the system. We're going to beat the matrix. Absolutely. <laughs> They're going to... It's like, Sir, Johnson, Johnson, get in here. Colonel Johnson, get in here. You've been watching... You've been watching the AI division of our war our war room, haven't you? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We believe we've got 99.99999% of the population under control, sir. Very good, Johnson. What about the rest? Are they dissenters? Well, not exactly. We don't know what they are. What do you mean, Johnson? Well, there appears to be a problem. Well, spit it out, Johnson. What's this? What the hell is this problem? I don't like problems. I don't pay you to have problems. I pay you to have solutions. Well, you see, the problem is, sir, we don't know if they're transsexual Christians or half pig, half humans born from goats with iPhones in remote villages in the Philippines. What the hell are you talking about, Johnson? Well, that's where it gets interesting. Apparently, they're big fans of George Orwell, and they all understand the techniques that we're using in the mainstream media to corrupt their minds. So perhaps they've become accustomed to our language, our manipulation in the mainstream media to corrupt their minds. Therefore, they're leaving open certain pages, certain rabbit holes for us to go down and follow in order to work out their psychology, sir. And what is their psychology, Johnson? We believe, sir, after much analysis and much data was taken, we had our team of scientists on the case. We believe they are indeed the cursed mutant devils born in the Philippines that are half pig, half human. They enjoy transsexual sex, and then afterwards they like to snack down on a piece of Christian cake. Great work, Johnson. You get to keep your job. Reminded me of this. It's a big man! A big man! Hey, I just saw a pig man. A pig man? Talking about a pig man. I walked into the wrong room, and there he was. A pig man. A pig man. Half pig, half man. Pig man, baby. Pig man. If I have to hear about this pig man one more time. Hey, I'm telling you, the pig man is alive. That way, if someone wanted to fix me up, they could say, hey, at least he's no pig man. All right, I'm with you. I, I want to see the pig man. Show me the... All the anguished oink of pig man cries out for help. Wait a minute, George. Now you got room in the car for the pig man, huh? The pig man can take the bus. George, if the pig man had a car, he would give you a ride. (laughs) That's my favourite Seinfeld line ever. George, if the pig man had a car, he would give you a ride. (laughs) How do you know? What what if the pig man had a two-seater? Be realistic, George. Be realistic, George. (laughs) I'll tell you what. If pig man shows up, we'll squeeze him in. So... Any word from the pig man? No. No. Pig man, baby. Pig man. He's not a pig man, is No, he's a fat little mental patient. Uh, Here's something slightly more serious on the same topic. Uh, I'd be interested to... I'm going to sit back and observe uh, Key Wizard's notes on this as a genealogist. I'm sure this will be of specific interest to her. Of course, there are major ethical problems and, of course... Um, the lines that get crossed at certain points and, you know, we're dealing with heavy topics in this little five, three and a half minute clip. Uh, if you're familiar with the topic of transhumanism, for example, 
you might find this of some interest. I mean, if you're a devout Christian, you might find this offensive. Again, this is your trigger warning. I mean, if you if, if you're still here, I guess though, if you're still here after people having sex with goats to make half men, half pig creatures, then I'm sure you're going to stick around for this clip anyway. So you know, I don't know why I'm doing the trigger warnings anymore, but let's carry on. In the world of organ donation, if someone desperately needs a transplant but they don't receive one in time, they die. But what if the sick were no longer reliant on organ donors to survive? That's a future we could soon be living in, according to new research by reproductive biologist Pablo Ross. In what could be a medical breakthrough, Dr. Ross removes the gene from pig embryos that makes their pancreas, then injects those embryos with human stem cells in an attempt to prove a pig can grow the human organ. And because the stem cells can be made from an adult human skin cells, any organ that grows would exactly match the human genetic source. In a way, this is creating a two-species hybrid, or chimera. Dr. Ross addressed the controversy over this new field of research, saying, quote, We're not trying to make a chimera just because we want to see this kind of, you know, monstrous creature. We're doing this for a, you know, biomedical purpose. Don't you love that you can hear the pigs snorting in the background? We're not trying to create a chimera so we can create this, you know, horrible creature. And then in the background, all you can hear, I've got, I've got cans on, so you know, you're not, you might not be able to hear it like I can. But all you can hear in the background is. <laughs> <laughs> We're not trying to create a hideous, hideous creature. <laughs> Set me free! I want to live. I don't consider that we're playing God or even close to that. We're just trying to use the technologies that we have developed to improve people's life. One of the arguments against this reason... Uh, uh, don't you just love it? We're not trying to play God here. Because, see, this, this all goes back to read again. I will tweet it out after the show. Go back and watch the replay. Politics in the English language. Play God. Play God is a cliche. It is. And the reason that you would use a cliche at this point, like we're not trying to play God, is because play God is specifically ambiguous. Like, hang on, what are you not trying to do? Like, so who, what, what define play God? Like, uh, you know, for example, what's that, you know, what's that fantastic actor who played God? Not George Burns, the other one, the black guy. Uh, he was in the Shawshank Redemption. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman played God. I'm not trying to play God here. Well, you know. So you see, like, play God is a specifically ambiguous term that can encapsulate any number of things. And because it's specifically ambiguous, they specifically use it when discussing very specific things like... I don't know, reconstructing the human genome in order to inject it into non-human species in order to create organs or some kind of human-animal hybrids. Isn't that kind of weird? Like, if you step back from it, isn't that just a little bit weird? And, you know, <clears throat> I'm, I'm all for science. I'm a very science-based guy. I love science. Don't get me wrong. But... Um, to just play it off as like, we're not trying to play God. We're just trying to improve people's lives. Oh, yeah. See, and improve people's lives is, again, another thing that falls right back into politics in the English language. 
I'm sorry, is it, sorry, improve people's lives? What, what are you talking about? What are you actually trying to do specifically? Like, give me a specific, give me a specific actual reason why you are taking human genetic code and implanting it into animals. Right? See, uh, if if someone was being honest with you and being succinct and being sincere about what they're doing, they wouldn't say, we're not trying to play God here. We're trying to improve people's lives. That's a very insincere thing to say. Celeste says, yes, but these things get normalised quickly and easily with the use of media. They do to a point that that, that ability is dying. I guess it's a race now. The normalisation process has changed. I suspect um, people who understand, you know, mass group psychology and predictive behavioural programming have probably moved out of mass, stra- uh, mass mainstream media already, which is probably why mainstream media is so poor now. Because I suspect, um, you know, the dark arts, um, the dark lords who are trying to normalise us into certain behavioural patterns have probably long abandoned mainstream media and just left it to uh, the hacks who are kind of just flailing around like somebody drowning in a riptide, not sure what to do, not sure what to grab on, don't know how to swim, can't breathe. You know, the kind of shit that we read in the mainstream media now, I think, akin to me, it's more akin to uh, somebody flailing for breath and attention trying to get the the lifeguard's attention rather than somebody who actually knows what they're doing. So I suspect the people that know what they're doing are no longer involved in the mainstream media like they were. And to be honest, maybe it's a massive misdirection to get us all focused on the mainstream media to think that this is where the propaganda campaign starts instead of focusing on other things, perhaps more subtle things and more subversive things where we don't even know that we're being propagandized. If I was a smart person, that's what I'd do. I'd make the mainstream media the main event and then fuck you sideways, so to speak. Carry on. Research is that the injected stem cells could go anywhere inside of the embryo. They could grow into a pancreas as intended, but they could also grow into some other organ, like a brain, potentially creating an animal with human-like brain function. Of course, oh, that at this point fine. we have That's no fine. idea how a pig with a human mind would behave or what its <laughs> needs would be. One of the cons- I know how a pig with a human mind would behave. He would be doing a live stream right now, and his name would be Boogie Bumper. Hmm. Ah. I enjoy my swill. I love rolling in the mud and feed me slop, and I will be happy. And I, at some point, I will shit on the floor. Just letting you know. Concerns that a lot of people have is that there's something sacrosanct about what it means to be human expressed in our DNA, and that by inserting that into other animals and giving those animals potentially some of the capacities of humans, uh, that this could be a kind of violation, a kind of maybe even playing God. But Dr. Ross argues he too is concerned about this and is only allowing the embryos to develop for 28 days before removing and dissecting them. Quote, We're very aware and very sensitive to the ethical concerns. One of the reasons we're doing this research the way we're doing it is because we want to provide scientific information to inform those concerns. 
For now, the National Institutes of Health has imposed a moratorium on funding while they explore the ethics of Chimera research. The U.S. Def- <laughs> we want to explore... The reason that we're doing the research that everyone is concerned about is because we want to inform the research. What? People are saying that our research is unethical. I say no, we need to do the research in order to decide what is ethical and what isn't. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) Good argument, bro. Cool argument, bro. Defense Department, though, is funding the project, which raises an entirely set of questions. But leaving aside the possibility of chimera soldiers for now, (laughs) there are many other ethical questions. What if a chimera... Why is the Department of Defense funding this technology? Just a question. Just I'm just throwing that out there. Something for you to chew on. Escaped or was smuggled out of the lab and began breeding with other animals. The spread of human-animal DNA could be rampant. Also, if humans are so closely genetically related to pigs that our body parts can be grown inside of them, is it still ethical to use pigs for research or to eat them? Despite the dangers of further diluting our sense of humanity with this type of research, Our species has a long history of putting self-interest ahead of ethical and moral concerns. And like the future that has surely been envisioned by some sci-fi writer, one can imagine how the seductive possibility of extending our already long lives could result in a future where factory farms are filled with pigs that not only provide us meat, but also beating hearts, kidneys, livers, and lungs. Thanks for watching. What do you think? The main issue I have with that is he said we already live long lives. We live incredibly short lives. We are a pimple on the asshole of time. The reality is that we live very short, very brutal, very unfair lives. Life is not fair, ladies and gentlemen. To take the wisdom from the Bloodhound Gang, life is short and hard like a bodybuilding elf. If you get anything out of that. So really what life is, as far as we can ascertain, is we here, like me, you, everybody that we know, um, everybody that we interact with, we are here for a very short space of time and we are all sharing an experience together. Some of us will die before others do, some of us will live longer than others do, but as far as we know, we are sharing an experience together right here, right now, and that's, that's basically all we know. That's basically it. But we don't really have long lives at all. Well, I mean, you know, billions of years pass before you were born and billions of years will pass after you're gone. You will be but a speck, not even a speck of dust in the sands of time. Oh, we're here for a long time, really. It might feel long if you're incredibly boring and talk about, you know, having sex with goats to make half human, half pigs for a living. Then, then it might feel like a fucking eternity, you know. If you live in Wyoming, I'm sure a year feels like 50. <laughs> but, you know, in terms of the human experience, we're here for a very, 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 very short time. So best make the most of it. Uh, here's a card trick, just because I think it was fun, and this is the fun holiday show, Fat Drunk or Lonely. 
Forming the magic for me is not about convincing anyone I have amazing abilities. It's about providing a journey which comes to a place where the brain starts spinning. And of course, the best brains spin the most. So I understand you are a bit of a magic fan and that you are or were something of a, an amateur magician. Yes, when I was a boy, I used to get all those wonderful books, um, all those books on, on card magic in particular, card and coin magic. I've never been a great one for display and cabinet magic for large lacquered boxes and disappearing mm. women. Oh, do, uh, do light up, by oh, the way. Thank you. Uh, it's interesting that magic does seem to appeal to uh, creative and often quite isolated Teenage and kids, a young mentality, yourself, if that's okay to say that. Woody Allen, of course, used to be. Absolutely. I mean, there's a theory that it's the revenge of the nerd, that it's the rather kind of uh, ignored and hopeless child who's not good on the games field, who who can kind of fool his co evils. And in that sense, a bit like comedy. You can get one over on the the big chaps because you can actually fool them and you can make them go, bloody hell, how'd you do that? How can you do what? Come on, you know. And they're the ones who could otherwise beat you up. There's some some element of that. Well, perhaps on that note, I should. uh... I should show you a trick, uh, a card trick no less, but my very favourite. Um, I'm going to spread the cards out on the table and ask you merely to look down and remember one card um, and to really burn the image of that card in your mind. So, for example, it was the three of hearts, then you see a big three and a big heart and burn that into your head. Please don't now go for the three of hearts, right. but uh, any card you like. Are you ready? Yep. I'll look the other way as you do it so I don't sort of catch a glimpse of where you might be looking. Got one? Yes. Yes. Marvellous. Thank you so much. Right. Um, thank you. Now, if you look at me, and in your mind, not out loud, obviously, just repeat that card to yourself over and over again. Just over and over again, like King of Diamonds, King of Diamonds, King of Diamonds. Shut up! Was that it? Fuck off! <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Bloody hell. Sorry, there's a rather extreme reaction, but that is extraordinary. That was a charming reaction. <laughs> That's quite brilliant. Thank you. Quite brilliant. Actually, a little more difficult than I thought. Do you know why? Why is that? Well, there is no King of Diamonds in there. No, there was. There was a, um... I'm trying to remember, where was it? In the middle somewhere? Or yeah. About a third of the... No, yes. there's a King of, King of Hearts, I believe. Uh, King of Hearts. Was... <coughs> <coughs> oh, for <God's> sake! <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Your card there, the, uh... King of Diamonds, thank you, Stephen. Isn't that, isn't that a magnificent card? Oh, trick? brilliant. Thank you so brilliant. much. Brilliant. Absolutely superb. Unpleasant souvenir for you. Oh. Isn't that sensational? Darren Brown. If you don't know Darren Brown, he's fucking amazing. Darren Brown is one of these people who um, exist in our time in this shared experience that we all do who... If he wasn't using his powers for good, he would um, be a very, 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 very dangerous man. Hyper intelligent, charming. Um, he he understands the the patterns of psychology probably better than anyone. I think master of the dark arts, classical conditioning, implanting uh, thoughts to extract later on. He's he's an absolute gem. And these are the kind of things that are regarded in intellectual terms as like, you must not talk about it, you must not discuss it. So like people who study uh, psychiatry and psychology and shit, uh, the stuff that Darren Brown does, they all go, oh, no, 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 don't, don't do what he does. That's really bad. But as long as he's using his powers for good instead of evil, then it's fine. Do you want another Darren Brown? Let's do another Darren Brown. Um, 
don't know. Where should we go? I'll show you the one with the psychology students. This is fun. Okay, now here, every look, every gesture is designed to influence. And you're all psychology students, right? Yeah. Does that mean that when you're talking to people that they kind of think you're constantly trying to analyse them? Do you get that? No, it's okay. Everyone says that. It's great. (laughs) I'm going to play this game with you, right? This is my favourite game. Okay. Simple game. Two envelopes. A five pound note. I'm going to seal this one on the envelopes. The three of you have to look the other way while I do this. Right the other way, literally face that way. Go. Okay. Go. I I can tell you what he's doing here, but I don't know if I want to ruin it. I'll ruin it. I'll ruin it. It's a fun holiday show. Okay. Let's ruin Come it. Come back and look. So watch him, watch him carefully. Watch his hands. You can keep it if you miss it and go for the wrong one. So he keeps eye contact, but the hands are always pivotal. Like it's in your peripheral vision, right? And this is like the power of suggestion. I'm afraid you can't. All right, go touch one. Now, you see what I did there? I'm saying if you touch the one with the money in it, and I move this one, I'm oh, he's going to tell you anyway. That's the one with the money in, which of course isn't. This one over here. <laughs> now I'm just ruining it. All right, watch again, because he actually tells you what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. Does that mean that when you're talking to people that they kind of think you're constantly trying to analyse them? Do you get that? No, it's okay. Everyone says that. Yeah. It's great. So. <laughs> I'm going to play this game with you, right? This is my favourite game. Okay. Simple game, two envelopes, a five-pound note. I'm going to seal this one on the envelopes. I don't want to sound sexist either, but there's a reason that all three of the people are uh, women because women are more susceptible to suggestion, unfortunately. This is why um, most advertising is geared towards women in order to, f- to appeal to female sensibilities. And this is why if you were trying to pick up girls in a bar... Um, you know, most girls appreciate humor, a good smile. They like eye contact. So the first thing you would do is go up, like have a witty line with you, make eye contact constantly and, um, tell a joke as soon as you possibly can try to be sly, um, tell a nice joke. And when she laughs, you touch her arm. That way she associates your touch with a good feeling. Next thing you know, the three of you have to look the other way while I do this right the other way, literally face that way. Go, go. Okay, turn back and look. Very simple, Alex. If you touch one with the money, you can keep it. If you miss it and go for the wrong one, I'm afraid you can't. All right, go touch one. Now, you see what I did there? I'm saying if you touch the one with the money in it and I move this one, I'm consciously signaling to you that that's the one with the money in, which of course isn't this one <laughs> over here. I also brought that one towards you as your finger came in. Get the idea? Uh-huh. This is great. We'll play with the tenor. You missed on the fiber. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Perfect. All right, 10 pounds. I give them a mix under the table so you can't see. Free choice. Just put your finger on any one you like. It's a free choice. The one you choose is the one you have. That one. Now, can you see what I'm doing? Can you see this with my hands? And you're exactly. <laughs> of course it isn't. It was in the other one. Did so you get good. the idea? Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. You missed on the 10 too. We'll play with 20, all right? 20 quid. Let's go. 20, 20 quid. Pounds. It's great. Again, you mix them. Okay. 
I'll do that. Now just think, all right? Am I trying to make you pick that one because I put the money over here by doing that? Or is it a kind of bluff and actually I know you'd never go for that one and I have in fact put the money there? Or is it a double bluff and I know that you'd get a second guess that one that you would go for that one in fact I put the money Or is it a triple bluff? Is it a bluff or is it a double bluff? Or is it a triple bluff? Exactly. Choose. What do you think? Think. With that one. Can you go for that one? Yep. Sure? Yep. Actually, it was a complete bluff because I forgot which one I was I love chess. Okay, that was luck on my part. It was in the other one. Very good, though. 50 quid. Are you playing with me? Someone in the chat said, how about a game of chess? I'd love to. I started playing chess when I was five. So I'd love to, I'd love to play a game of chess. My favourite game. You play with me, all right? Tell you what, I'll look the other way. Get another envelope. Keep your finger on this one because you want to keep track of where it is, all right? Keep your okay. finger on that one. I'll look the other way. Mix them around. When you're done, lift your finger off so you know the one that it's in, okay? I'm going to look over here. Okay. Done? Done. All right. I'm going to ask you, is it here, is it here, is it here? You have to say yes to each one, all right? Yep. Is it in this one? Yes. Is it in this one? This is yes. the best one. Is it in this one? Yes. That's not. <laughs> is it in this one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it was. <laughs> You're very good there. Very good. Last one. Let's do this with. Um, we'll do this with fifty. All right. Fifty pounds. See, because not only has he got the suggestion thing, but he can also read their facial patterns. He can see the um, like the the widening of their eyes. He can see like a slight smirk. He can see like the dilation of their pupils and everything like that. He can read them at on that level as well, like the physical level not only the psychological level and the physical level as well. So that that's why I said, like, if he wasn't using his powers for good for our entertainment to make these things like public knowledge, he would be a very, very dangerous man. Of course, you would be naive to assume that other people don't also have this understanding and this knowledge in, in the real world who use their powers for bad instead of good. Who turn to the dark side, the dark side of the force. Come to the dark side. There are things you can learn on the dark side that no Jedi can teach you. Mix them up. Okay. I tell you what, I'll put the rest of the money on it as well. All right, so it's 50 plus 20, 70, <laughs> 80, 85. And that, um, Andy, have you got that? Wear that watch. Let me take that off here. And his watch as well, all right? So that, that's 85 quid and and his watch for the last envelope. And I'll tell you, because I feel bad because you keep hey, losing. I'll tell you. Tell us in this one. <laughs> I trust if you. Don't, well, if you don't trust me, Alex, it's up to you. I can't I trust you. Don't trust him. Don't trust him. Don't trust him. Right. Isn't that but I will also give you five seconds to change your mind so you know this was completely <laughs> fair and you don't feel manipulated in any way. Right? <laughs> That's the money if you win. You've got five seconds. Does that feel right? That feels then right. Then absolutely stick with it. <laughs> and do not change your mind if that feels right. Okay. Five seconds to change your mind there if you want. Don't five. No, don't. Four. Just stick with it. Yeah. Stick with it, I'm telling you. Three. Trust me. <laughs> Two. One. Stick with it. Zero. I can't believe you believe me. <laughs> I was in the other one. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. I think he was predicting the way I was going to behave before I knew I was going to behave like that. You don't say. You don't say. Isn't he a gem? <clears throat> Darren Brown. You should check him out. 
He's been fantastic. I love him. Um, all right, let's do another story here. Hang on, I need some tunes. Oh, yeah. There we go. That's better. Oh, no, the pressure. The pressure. I've got something really good for you here. Wait until you see this. Time traveller from the year 3700 warns of terrible war between humans and robots. Somebody's been watching too much Terminator. Mike the Time Traveller says he's been involved in secret operations for the National Secure Laboratory of Canada. That's when I knew this story was bullshit. There is absolutely no way that Canada, one, could do time travel and two, not get to the year three. 3700 and not be ruled by some weird like patriarchal fundamentalist Islamic ideology. There's no way that that's happening. There's no way that there is a time travel division in Canada in 3700. Are you with me? <laughs> I can't see it. They'll, in 3700 all of the people like the whole uh, Canadian nation will be immigrant and they'll all have like pictures of Justin Trudeau on their kitchen walls you know, like in the dining rooms, like they like they used to do with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. You know what I mean? So, because you have to have, like, the dear leader. So there is absolutely... I'm thinking there's no way that time travel exists in Canada in 3700. Sorry. Sorry, bro. Call me a sceptic. I know it's a long way out. I know we're talking, like, 1,500 years here. But still. What, 1,500? God. God, my math is terrible. Well, that's because I've been to the year 2200, and I know 1,500 years from now, it's not going to happen. <laughs> uh, do you want to watch the guy? I don't know if you can see the subtitles, though, because he speaks in, I think he's speaking Greek. Sample of Robert Buddy that I brought from the future. Me. He's going to show you a robot body that he brought from the future, from the year 3700. Introduced Type Force r- fighters were the world's fiercest. <laughs> Generally, <laughs> if you remember, I was telling you. Uh, Laura says poker is easy. Just learn micro expressions. It's not that easy. You still have to know uh, probabilities and a little bit of maths. But it helps if um, you know if someone at the table's an alcoholic, you buy them drinks. That way, they get loose. You know, they call that edge. So if you if you spend any time at the card table, um, a, another word would be hustling. <laughs> but um, the more professional way to put it would be maximising your edge. So if you can get an edge on a guy, then you do it. About the robot foxes. This part of mechanical body I took from the fox whom I killed with my own hands. As you can see, it's not as big as you might imagine. Robot foxes. But believe me, there is so much power in this little hand that it can divide you in hundred pieces. In hundred pieces. The foxes were moving very fast and it was difficult to shut on them. Although, they were jumping very high. And if it would notice and approach to you, your chances to stay alive would be miserable. There was two types of fox robots. One had two hands, and the other ones had one hand 
and another was laser gun. The war between humans and robots was very unequal. Robots had different types of modern weapons. Okay. A man who claims to be a time traveller who has visited the year 3700 has warned of a terrible and destructive war between humans and robots. Mike the time traveller even brought back a part of a robot that he said had kill- he had killed with his bare hands as proof of his fantastical missions. He made the claims in an interview with Apex TV, a YouTube channel which specialises in paranormal activity and bizarre theories and has nearly 800,000 subscribers, to which I promptly, upon reading this article, promptly subscribe to their YouTube channel and I look forward to the next edition of the time travel escapades of Mike. Mike, who is of Greek heritage, was born in France and lived there until he was 14 before moving to Canada. Well, isn't that the way? It was in Canada that he he says he began to be interested in science and ended up working at a place called the National Secure Laboratory of Canada at the age of 18, where he said he was involved in, quote, many secret operations and objectives. Well, they can't be too secret because you're giving an interview with the fucking mirror, mate. You are literally giving a, an interview with the mirror and showing them a robot fox that you brought back from the future. It can't be that secret. <laughs> if it was such a secret, we wouldn't know. <laughs> I always love these people that come out and say, we've, we've got access to a secret mission. Well, the fact that you're telling me proves that it's not a secret. Like, do you not understand the meaning of the word secret? We have secret information. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're making it up. I have secret information. No, you don't. Nope, 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 nope. You don't have secret information. You don't have an inside line. You are entirely making it up. Why? Because the very fact that you're telling me and telling thousands of people of on YouTube or radio or Periscope or Twitter or whatever it is, the very fact that you are allowing this information to continue out there in the ether in the era of mass social media censorship, of mass control where anybody from any like like the dumbest the dumbest person employed at the NSA could hack into your phone or your computer right now and shut it down. The, the dumbest person could erase you from, you know, they could erase your entire social media history. The dumbest guy. Imagine what the smart guy's doing. And I would imagine that the smart guys are involved in, like, all of the secret plans. They don't put the dumbest guys in the secret plans because the dumbest guys are going to give up the secret plans. You don't put the dumb guys on the secret plans. We need the smart guys on the secret plans. So if there are smart guys involved in secret plans and you have knowledge of this fucking secret plan, the very fact that you're posting it on Twitter day after day and making videos about it proves that it's not a fucking secret plan. That ain't no secret, bro. (laughs) Sorry. The highest levels of government know about this plan. No, they don't. No, they don't. (laughs) I, I have inside knowledge. I know. I know. I have sources. Super secret government insiders have told me about the... This... This super secret government organization. With a super secret plan. And I am now telling you, the average asshole on Twitter. No, you're not. (laughs) No, you're not. (laughs) You wouldn't be here. You would cease to exist. If the fate of the world rested upon the, the, 
the containment of this secret, then you would not be telling it. Simple as that. Very simple logic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to come up with a plot to take over the world, travel in time, and then I'm just going to let somebody walk out of the office with a fax and just tell people about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. doesn't tend to happen anyway. Maybe it will happen, but it certainly hasn't yet. Something to think about anyway. Uh, speaking of time travel, here we have 10 real cases of time travel. Let's check it out. I thought this was pretty cool though. How you doing? I'm Callan and this is Slamped Ham. Today we're talking about weird cases of time travelling. From a time traveller who passes a lie detector test to a man from the future who earned a fortune on the stock market. Join us as we take a look at 10 real cases of time travel that can't be explained. In February 2018, a man who claimed to be a time traveller underwent a lie detector test on camera. The man, only known as Noah, said he was from the year 2030 and made several predictions for the near future. Among them, he said that Donald Trump would be re-elected for a second term of presidency. In 2028, time travel will be invented and the first humans will visit Mars. He also claimed that Bitcoin will be used as a currency, but that cash money also still exists. Noah also claims to have some sort of futuristic technology implanted in his wrist that is somehow involved in the time travel process. An X-ray confirms that there is, in fact, some sort of device embedded under the skin, but he refuses to have it surgically removed. Several days after the lie detector test, Noah was reported to mysteriously vanish during a live stream. It was then revealed that he contacted the channel via email, stating that he was briefly taken back to the year 2030 for interrogation, but is now back in our time. In 1932, journalist Jay Bernard Hutton... Ladies and gentlemen, everyone's favourite Earth reporter, B.E. from the UK, is in the house. B.E., give him a wave, say hello, B.E. from the UK. B.E. from the UK has been with the starting block for what, like six years now? Five, six years? A long fucking time. Put it that way, a long fucking time. He was the UK reporter for the starting block when we were a sports show. Now he's the Earth reporter now that we're not a sports show and now that we're no longer on the radio and we just do Periscope instead of radio. We used to actually do radio shows at a radio station with radio equipment. <laughs> but now we don't. Uh, that, that relationship came to an end. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why. I guess, I guess they couldn't just, I, I guess they couldn't chew on our vibe or something. I don't know. I guess they couldn't just get us the way we need to be got. 2011, yeah, so seven years. It's a pretty long fucking time. BE from the UK. Along with photographer Joachim Brandt, was sent to do a story on the Hamburg shipyard for a German newspaper. The pair claimed that shortly after they arrived at the shipyard, bombs started raining down from the sky and they had to scramble to safety. When they emerged, they took several photographs of the devastation before returning to Hamburg. When the pair told their story, no one believed them as there had not been a bombing of any sort. Determined to prove that they were not crazy, they developed the photographs they had taken. To their shock, the photographs showed no signs of an air raid whatsoever. 
Eleven years later, Hutton was living in London when he opened a newspaper and read that an air raid had taken place on the Hamburg shipping yard. The bombing was part of the Allied attack. I've actually heard of this one before. It's pretty creepy. To his amazement, the photographs in the newspaper looked just like the ones he thought he and Brandt had taken years earlier. Did the pair slip through some sort of time rip? Had they actually witnessed an event that was yet to occur? In 2016, a mysterious photograph surfaced on Icelandic social media. It showed downtown Reykjavik in 1943 at the height of World War II. In the foreground, a group of American GIs can be seen standing outside a taxi station, as well as a man leaning against a window who appears to be talking on a mobile phone long before they even existed. Originally posted to a Facebook group by Christian Hoffman, it quickly began to attract attention across the internet. The photo was so convincing that many people said it was irrefutable proof that time travel must exist, while others thought that it showed that the mobile phone must have already been invented and in use in Iceland by the... I want to see the picture with Jake uh, JFK Jr. in it. 1940s. What do you think? Is this man from the 1940s really using a cell phone? There's been several recorded instances of people seemingly using technology that shouldn't exist at the time. Many believe it to be evidence of time travel. This footage of a woman exiting a DuPont factory was taken in 1928. Wind's alive. It is old school, isn't it? We're having fun tonight. It's a holiday for the Americans. This footage was taken from the opening of a Charlie Chaplin film in 1928. As the camera pans in, a lady can be seen walking past chatting on another mobile phone. What do you think? Does this footage really prove that time travel exists? It's pretty creepy. But, this now. Again, I must, uh, I must ask. You know. If you have the ability to to travel through time, would you take an iPhone? Just a question. You know how the iPhone, sometimes the buttons, like the button gets sticky, sometimes the apps don't load. If you have the ability to travel hundreds of years or even, even five years into the future or into the past, why are you taking an iPhone? Surely better technology exists. Like, surely at this point, don't we have phones that, like, can be implanted into your ears or something you speak into your wrist or something, like there's a chip in your wrist or something? So you're trying to tell me that, like, hundreds of years from now, people have the ability to travel through time, but the iPhone still exists. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Are they talking on a smartphone? What? (laughs) No, I'd take an Android, right? (laughs) How would you get a signal? Exactly. There must be a company out there. There must be a company out there on the interwebs. I want all this is your homework assignment. I want you to go out there and find a mobile phone carrier who guarantees service in the year 2070. (laughs) My mobile phone service can't even guarantee my mobile phone carrier can't even guarantee service next fucking week. Look, I'm willing to sign a contract with you. I'm very interested in your deals. I'm very interested in your rates. I like your data plan. Uh, tell me, what what are the effects of the data plan circa 3,700? Let me tell you, I've got a lot of data to transfer 
you know, 1,600 years from now. <laughs> Am I going to be able to make a collect call from the year 1923? How are they making calls when satellites don't exist? <laughs> Right, I th- I think it's more likely, and you know, like I love to believe in this stuff too. Don't get me wrong. I think it's more likely there are a lot of photos out there, black and white photos of people scratching their ear. <laughs> Maybe crazy people talking to themselves, scratching their ear. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were holding an iPhone. Fine print on AT&T contract may lock us in that long. That's a very good point, Celeste. (laughs) If you do so happen to uh, be resurrected in the year 3000, you can expect a pretty big fucking bill. (laughs) It seems like, I'm sorry, sir, it seems like your great, 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 great grandchildren have been downloading porn. So, you know, here's the bill. (laughs) Damn it. I just got resurrected and I've got to pay for this shit. But great, 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 great granddad, I was looking up tranny porn and how to cook, uh, how to bake Christian cakes. Oh, well, that's okay. My lesson was passed on. I had an impact on the world. You you kept both of those pages open on your web browser, right? At all times, great, 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 great granddad. Well done, son. Well done. Welcome to the year 2018. You can be anything you want to be. Our famous black and white photo was taken on the day South Fork Bridge reopened in Canada in the early 1940s. Take a look at the man in the middle right of this image. He's wearing a pair of modern sunglasses, a hooded That's jumper, a- and a logo printed T-shirt. If this is- That's a good one. This is a good one. This is more realistic to me. He seems really out of place there. No one was wearing hoodies here. It could be a fake photo, don't get me wrong. But that's a better one than someone talking on a mobile phone. He's wearing a pair of modern sunglasses, a hooded jumper and a logo printed T-shirt. If this is a real time traveller, why has he travelled to the 1940s to witness a bridge reopening in Canada? Now I know some of you are thinking that you've seen this photo a million times before, but wait till the number one spot where we'll reveal an extra piece of shocking information. This photo was taken after Brazil's triumph over Czechoslovakia in the final of the 1962 FIFA World Cup. The man holding the trophy is Brazilian player Garincha, who was voted player of the tournament. If you look directly below him, there's a man who appears to be taking a photo of Garincha using a mobile phone. Could this be evidence of a time traveller who's travelled back in time to witness this historical sporting occasion? In 1901, Anne Mobley and Eleanor Jourdain, two professors from St Hugh's College in Oxford, England, travelled to France to visit the Palace of Versailles. As they were walking around a small chateau within the grounds known as Petit Trianon, the pair claimed that something very strange happened. They said they were suddenly surrounded by people dressed in 1780s period attire and that Mary Antoinette herself was sitting on a stool in the gardens. Seemingly impossible as Antoinette, the last Queen of France, was found guilty of high treason and beheaded by guillotine in 1793. I gotta love French The pair then claimed that everyone mysteriously disappeared just as a tour guide approached them. 
1911, the two professors wrote a book titled An Adventure, under the aliases of Elizabeth Morrison and Francis Lamont, that described in detail their bizarre experience. Because of the credibility of the authors and the grounded accounts of which they told their story, it is widely regarded as one of the best pieces of evidence that time slips may actually exist. Did Mobley and Jourdain experience a time slip, or was it some sort of strange hallucination? Let us know what you think could have happened in the comments section below. In 2008, archaeologists opened a sealed tomb in Guangxi, China that supposedly hadn't been disturbed for more than 400 years. Inside the coffin, they discovered a small wristwatch with the time frozen at 10.06. On the back, the word Swiss was engraved. The first wristwatch, however, was not made until the 1800s, which makes the discovery in Guangxi so baffling. Was the watch left behind by a clumsy time traveller, or could it just be an elaborate hoax? I'm sorry. You can see... <laughs> Is this is this painfully obvious to everyone or just me? How can you call that a wristwatch? <laughs> <laughs> Whose fucking wrist are we putting this on? Golems? What the fuck are we talking? That's not a wristwatch. That's not even a finger watch. We found a rich a wristwatch. No, you didn't. You found a, a small thing that kind of looks like a watch. That is not a wristwatch. Look how big his fingers are. It wouldn't even fit over his thumb. That's not a wristwatch. <laughs> the, 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 the term wristwatch, it, it, you know, it implies an inherent you know, reality that it must fit over one's wrist. If it doesn't fit over your wrist, it's not a fucking wristwatch. It's a thing that looks like a clock. I know I know in in past times like human beings were smaller. Don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong. I'm not denying science. I'm not saying that there's a flat earth or anything like that. I know that like in the time of the Roman Empire the average height was like 5 foot 6 or something like that, 5 foot 7, right? So the people have grown bigger. Like I I understand that. As a tall man, I painfully understand that because my feet hang over the head of uh, over the edge of every bed, and every shower I step into, I bang my head on the on the you know the door, and the shower head is never really high enough. It's like washing your chest. It's really hard to get a shower head at a hotel that goes over your head. But that being said, um. I'm not sure how far back we have to go in history. Like, I, you know, even if we go back 3,000 years or 2,500 years to, like, the, the, the height of the Egyptian empire, if, if they were this small where that classifies as a wristwatch, how the fuck did they make the pyramids? I don't understand. I know Asians are kind of smaller than the rest of us. Like, there are tall Asians. Remember Yao Ming for the Rockets? Brilliant player. Great player. Oh, man. Yao Ming owned the key. Owned the key. But that's not a wristwatch. <laughs> even, even Yao Ming's ancestors in the ancient Chinese dynasties. I mean, if, that, if those were the wristwatches in the ancient Chinese dynasties, no wonder they got slaughtered by the Mongols. No wonder. In 
a video published in February 2018, a man by the name of Alexander Smith claims to be a time traveller that's visited the year 2118. In the video, he says that he's actually one of the first people to ever use time travel technology as part of a top-secret CIA mission in 1981. He goes on to say that a group of unnamed people were looking for him and that he was living in hiding. Among other things, Smith claims that by the mid-21st century, it's become widely known to the public that intelligent alien life exists. He goes on to say that they've been visiting Earth for a long time and that the government... I can't wait for the aliens to show up. I've been I've been planning. I've got a welcome hamper. Vegemite's in there. Uh, trust me, if the aliens ever taste Vegemite, they will fuck off back to their home planet immediately, and the Australians will rule the world. ...has been keeping it a secret. He also says that while walking around in the year 2118, he came across a statue of a man named Janu Oliver Beck, who he later found out would become President of the United States and is somehow assassinated. At the end of the interview, Smith reaches into his jacket and produces a photo of a city he claims he took while visiting the year 2118. He then mentions that the reason the image is slightly distorted is due to the time travel process. In 2003, a newspaper reported that a man by the name of Andrew Carlson had been arrested on insider trading charges. According to a report by the Security and Exchange Commission, Carlson had turned an initial investment of just $800 into a portfolio worth around $350 million US dollars while trading the stock market. All the trades he made were high... Has anyone seen that movie? Um, I forget the guy, the, the good-looking young rooster who's in it. The good-looking young cock who's in it. Um, what's his name? Uh, my wife goes crazy for him. Ah, oh, fuck. What's his name? And... I think Limitless, Limitless, you know, the movie um, where he takes a drug and his whole brain starts operating. I think that they got the idea from this, didn't they? I could be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I think they got the idea from for that from for that movie from this because he's like a, like a, you know, kind of a hack writer. His life's not going anywhere. He's a drunk. His girlfriend leaves him. He lives like shit. And then all of a sudden he takes this drug where his whole brain starts operating on full function all of the time, like this miracle drug. And, of course, you know, mayhem ensues. But in the meantime, he ends up on Wall Street and trades in millions of dollars in a couple of days and everyone thinks he's the wonder kid and stuff. It's a good movie. Been arrested Bradley Cooper, there it is. Trading you. <laughs> According to a report by the Security and Exchange Commission, Carlson had turned an initial investment of just $800 into a portfolio worth around $350 million US <laughs> while trading the stock market. So the first two responses I got, one was from uh, Alora Lai or Alora Lee, who's obviously a female, and she said Bradley Cooper. The very next response from BE from the UK who also knew it was Bradley Cooper. I said, my wife goes crazy for him and Brad and Brad from the UK, BE from the UK was like, I know, I know. <laughs> All the trades he made were high risk and based on information that he couldn't have known unless he had inside information or was from the future. Carlson was interrogated by the FBI and confessed that he was actually a time traveller from the year 2256. He claimed that his plan was to make several small trades here and there that would go unnoticed, but that he got caught up in the excitement of the situation and ended up making a fortune. The more the FBI pressed him, the more Carlson insisted that he was actually from the future. 
In an effort to prove his story, Carlson is said to have even told the FBI where Osama bin Laden was hiding, as well as giving them the cure for AIDS. However, the story gets even stranger. In an effort to further prove himself, Carlson offered this photo as proof that he was actually a time traveller. He claimed that he was also witness to the reopening of the South Fork Bridge in Canada in the early 1940s, alongside the mysterious man oh, dressed in fuck, look clothes. at that. Carlson pleaded with Look at that. Return to the year 2250. Oh, we have to watch this guy again. According to a a newspaper reported that a man by the name of Andrew Carlson had been arrested on insider trading charges. According to a report by the Security and Exchange Commission, Carlson had turned an initial investment of just $800 into a portfolio worth around $350 million US dollars while trading the stock market. All the trades he made were high risk and based on information that he couldn't have known unless he had inside information or was from the future. Carlson was interrogated by the FBI and confessed that he was actually a time traveller from the year 2256. He claimed that his plan was to make several small trades here and there that would go unnoticed, but that he got caught up in the excitement of the situation and ended up making a fortune. The more the FBI pressed him, the more Carlson insisted that he was actually from the future. In an effort to prove his story, Carlson is said to have even told the FBI where Osama bin Laden was hiding, as well as giving them the cure for AIDS. However, the story gets even stranger. In an effort to further prove himself, Carlson offered this photo as proof that he was actually a time traveller. He claimed that he was also witness to the reopening of the South Fork Bridge in Canada in the early 1940s, alongside the mysterious man dressed in modern-day clothes. Carlson pleaded with the authorities to release him so he could return to the year 2256. However, he refused to give up the location of his timecraft for fear of the technology falling into the wrong hands. <laughs> Shortly after his arrest, a mysterious man posted his bail of one million US dollars. He was due to appear in court in April of 2003, but wow. disappeared on the way to the hearing. <laughs> there was no record of an Andrew Carlson existing prior to December 2002, and he was never seen or heard from ever again. That's pretty crazy. That's pretty weird. That's pretty weird. The guy just disappeared. <laughs> there was no record of him. <laughs> I like the fact that the thing I like about this is that he refused to give up the um, the location of his time machine because it might fall into the wrong hands. Yet the guy who's saying that it might fall into the wrong hands apparently on a whim just travelled back in time to make a few bucks on the stock market and ended up getting arrested by the FBI. Good job, bro. Good job. <laughs> Hopefully your superiors don't hear about this in the year 2256. Oh, hang on. They did because there's an arrest report. Oh, shit. They already knew. See, in the year 2256, they already know that you were arrested for insider training and uh, insider trading and claiming to be a time traveler, right? Because if you travel back in time to the year 2003 and commit like insider trading and make $350 million on the stock market, they already know about that in 2256. So how would somebody in 2256 give you permission to jump in the time machine and go back and do what you're doing? Right? Right? Are you with me? Are you following me? I know you're following me.
Let's get to your stuff. Thanks for sending in stuff, by the way. Always appreciate you guys sending in stuff on the Twitter. Are you spending Thanksgiving alone? Too much of a jerk to get an an invitation to dinner? It's getting late. The tongue's starting to get tired. No, he changed the future, but did he? Because if if it's already happened... Like, have you, Monica, have you seen the movie, um, what is it? Is it 12 Monkeys, right? So the, the premise in the, tw- in the time travel movie 12 Monkeys is uh, it's already happened, so you can't change it, right? You can't change the future by changing the past because the past has already happened. So he goes back in time in 12 Monkeys, Bruce Willis, knowing that um, it doesn't matter what he does, it's already happened, like, he's already been in the insane asylum. The 12 monkeys have already released the thing because he lives in the present, which is actually the future. See, because if you're in the present, you can't change the past. The past has already happened. Right? Too much of a jerk to get an invitation to dinner? Well, fear not, my annoying friend. The free-for-all is live tonight at 11pm. Well, at least it was. Clipper article. We'll see you then. Um, MGR, I don't know who MGR is. Thanks for joining us. Never seen you before. Posted what looks like a detailed uh, case analysis of Khashoggi. SSG Studies Group. How detailed is it? I don't know if I've got. I've, I don't know if I've got the stamina for details. It was twenty two da- twenty two days ago. Come on, man! You got to be topical. You gotta be topical. Oh, 12, the Brad Pitt character, that was Brad Pitt's best character. Monica said, yes, 12 Monkeys, Brad Pitt was weird. No, that was Brad Pitt's best ever character in 12 Monkeys. I'm telling you, that was his best ever character. Drugs! What'd they give you? Thorazine? How much? How much? The killing of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey caught the attention of the entire world for an extended period of time, much longer than the news of one norma, one murder normally would. Security Studies Group decided to examine why. We took a rigorous look at the actual origins and spread of unique aspects of this story to see where it came from and who was moving it around. The results were not exactly what we expected. Here we present our results. This is very... like I'm going to have to read links here. The Turkish government attained success through an adaptation of a Russian technique that the RAND Corporation calls fire hoses of falsehood propaganda model. In fact, the falsehood aspect of this model is dispensable. The model works much better if the information can be proven true. That's true. Like, um, I think, you know, something that you can reference here is, uh, remember the guy Remember the guy who was a spy in the UK and the Russian government was accused of poisoning this guy with a certain kind of chemical. Do you remember that? Now, remember that Darren Brown clip we played before? So people instantly jumped on the thing like, uh, well, why would the Russians um, poison this guy with the chemical that they can only find in Russia? Like, that's too obvious. The Russians aren't that stupid. To which I would, you know, respectfully reply, why wouldn't they poison the guy that way? Because then if you poison the guy, like if you make it obviously you, you can turn around and say, of course it wasn't us because we wouldn't obviously do it like that. <laughs> you see what I mean? Like it, if, if, you, if you make it obvious that you're the murderer, your best defense is to say, well, of course it wasn't me. I'm not stupid. Why would I make it so obviously me? 
And then everyone's like, hmm. So they have a defense in the obviousness of the attack, if that makes sense. So that's what they're saying. The model works much better if the information can be proven true. You know what I'm trying to say. You know what I'm saying. So there's there's a chemical that's only found in Russia, and this guy was killed in the UK with a chemical that's only found in Russia. So everyone comes out and says, oh, Russia obviously did it because the chemical's only found in Russia, but then Russia has the best possible defense to say, well, don't you think we're a little smarter than the, there's only one chemical that's found in Russia? Why would we kill the guy with the only chemical that's found in Russia? Like, obviously, we're being framed. Because we're, we're not that stupid. We wouldn't do it that way. But what if you did? Then you've got a great defense and nobody knows what to fucking do. <clears throat> Just putting that out there. What is essential to the model used by the Turks and Russians is a repeated injection of wild stories. Not all at once, but in controlled sequence. This creates a building effect similar to the increase of tension in a novel or screenplay. The audience comes to see attaining uh, a resolution as necessary to their personal psychic well-being. Well, there you go. That's pretty much what we were talking about. Fox News apologises after guest compares Hillary Clinton to herpes. From the Hollywood Reporter. She won't go away. She's like herpes. Turning Point USA directors of Spanish engagement Anna Paulina said, prompting Fox News host Rick Leventhal to quickly end her appearance. Well, why can't you say she's like herpes? Something that goes away, something that doesn't go away, it's like herpes. It's a, I mean, it's better than doing this comparison. The Proud Boys are like radical Islam. Like saying Hillary Clinton is akin to herpes to me is more reasonable than saying the Proud Boys are like radical Islam. Don't you, don't you agree? If you're talking about something that doesn't go away, then yeah, herpes is pretty much where it's at. Herpes is, herpes is the thing that stays. Regardless of your feelings, that's not fair on herpes, says Dan. I think it's a better comparison than the Proud Boys one. Fox News has issued an apology. Uh, uh, the apology. Why is, why is Fox News apologizing? A guest on the show said something that, you know, apparently people took offense to. Why is Fox News having to apologize? Why can't we have, you know, why can't we be uh, a little bit more mature and say just because somebody is invited as a guest on a show doesn't mean that the particular show endorses everything that the guest says? Like, isn't that the point? Are we, aren't we trying to engage in discussion? Aren't we trying to be challenged with thought? Aren't we trying to, you know, don't we want risky opinions out there? Like, if we, if we just want TV that where everybody agrees, we may as well have one fucking channel. Have one channel where all of the guests sign a waiver before they go on there and say, I will absolutely agree with everything the host says. And then, then you're safe. But then what's the fucking point? Right? During her morning segment, Turning Point USA's Director of Spanish Engagement, Anna Paulina, made an appearance to discuss Clinton's email scandal scandal, with political analyst Doug Schoen. After Fox News host Rick Leventhal mentioned Clinton's consistent appearance in the media, Paulina took a moment to make the herpes jab. Oh, I, like, I like the use of language there, herpes jab. <laughs> if only there was a jab to cure herpes. She won't go away. She's like herpes, Paulina said. This is it. This is the outrage now. Give me a break. I mean, 
I mean, please, you go, you go. We, the, the 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 public is now so desensitized to language that you know she won't go away. She's like herpes. That's nothing. How about walking around talking, telling people that uh, Donald Trump is the ad, the the modern day adaptation of Adolf Hitler, and the Republican Party is the Third Reich, and that Brett Kavanaugh is a gang rapist. Nobody apologizes for that. So I, I fail to see why this is offensive. And I'm not easily offended. Like, I'm not saying one side's better than the other. I'm not saying politics, anything like that. It's like, please, can we just stop apologizing for shit that doesn't need to be apologized for? Can we just grow up a little bit? That would be great. Like, fuck me. Are we all children here? Do we need to have our eyes covered in the scary parts and, you know, fingers shoved down our ears when people say scaring things? Or are we adults? It's up to you. You You decide. Dear Jack Dorsey, you insulted Hindu Hindus while on our soil, and it's time you introspect. <laughs> <laughs> it's time you introspect. Remember, go back to the start of the show. Politics in the English language. We will tweet it out when this broadcast is completed. <laughs> why? Why would you use a word like introspect? unless you were deliberately trying to be impressive where you otherwise weren't. For a CEO of a multi-billion dollar international company, one would expect you to understand the basic dynamics of the country and understand what is right and wrong. Well, that's kind of a big fucking issue here. (laughs) So wait, because he is uh, the CEO of Twitter, he's supposed to be able to understand what's right and wrong in India? Really? Really? You know, in some tribes in India, ladies and gentlemen, do you know what they do? Uh, do you know how they deal with dead people in some tribes in India? They burn them and then push their bodies into a river, which like a few miles down the river, people bathe in and drink out of. And shit like cholera and other diseases is rife. They shit in the street. They shit in the street. So if the CEO of uh, Twitter came out and said, well, you know what? Um, it's wrong to shit in the street, would this person then accuse him of, you know, you should know what's right and wrong in India? Apparently it's right to shit in the street in India. Who knew? Maybe Jack Dorsey is supposed to come out and endorse um, people being burned by the side of a river after they die and then being pushed into the river for people to later bathe in and drink out of. Then, Then it's like, well, you understand what's right and wrong in India now, don't you, Jack? Yes, I do. Doesn't make any sense. So right and wrong applies to um, different countries or is right and wrong personal? Is there a personal right and wrong? Do my personal ideas of right and wrong dictate what is right and wrong in other countries? Does a whole country decide what is right and wrong? Does a country agree on what's right and wrong? Do all the people in America agree on what is right and wrong? No, but yeah, he, yet here you have uh, here you have this idiot, this journalist Kapil Mishra. He's telling he's telling Jack Dorsey what's right and wrong in India. I guarantee you, like, there's at least half a billion people who would disagree with this journalist about what's right and wrong in India. At least, there's a lot of fucking people in India. I bet they've got all sorts of ideas about what right and wrong is. 
never mind the the musings of someone who has a, a you know a plush cushy job writing shit articles about Jack Dorsey on the internet. I'm pretty sure the guy who has a, a plush cushy job writing shit articles about Jack Dorsey on the internet in India probably has a very different idea about what is right and wrong compared to people who have to clean toilets for a living in India. Don't you? Wouldn't you agree? I think we'll leave that one there. Let's discuss how libs can't meme for shit. Well, that's that's plainly obvious. Corinne B sent this gift through. She won't be watching tonight. She's sleeping too much turkey. There's Corinne in cartoon form. Sandra said, I love you, Boogie. And then I posted some girls going crazy over the Beatles. An oldie but a goodie from Benke Veritas. Benke Veritas. What do we got here? Psychology today is good for a good for a yarn. Thanks for joining us, Millie. Good night. Why spotting other people's flaws makes us forget ours. When I get angry with someone for doing something I don't like, all of my memories of having done something similar vaporize instantly. Well, what about ism? Why is that? I don't think it's just me. It seems pretty universal default behavior. Don't interrupt me, she hissed for a long time, forgetting that she had ever interrupted anyone in her life. It's not all about you, he sneered. All of his memories of having been egotistical suddenly vaporized. They're acting like greedy pigs, they shouted, losing for a moment all access to memories of times when they too had indulged at other people's expense. See, this is why I don't get upset at bad service for people who work minimum wage. I expect bad service from people who work minimum wage. I wouldn't I wouldn't put effort in if I was earning like fucking six bucks an hour. <laughs> I'm just showing up to get paid, man. The rest of the time, you're on your own. I don't care about customer service. Six bucks an hour, you, you don't deserve customer service if you're a customer. Sorry. Sorry. And you know what? Like, I don't even need this job. I can walk out of the door and get another shitty fucking job for six bucks an hour. It's no problem. So I'm actually happy when I walk into a place where the people are getting paid minimum wage and they, they give me shit service. I'm like, I like you. You, you, you're real. You're a real person. I really want to know what that guy thinks. And if he's like, fuck off, look at the shelf yourself, then I'm like, thank you, man. Thank you, bro. Good luck in the future. You've got a big future ahead of you. I don't get angry. We draw the contrast by exaggerating how bad the person we're angry at is, but also by exaggerating how good we are in comparison. We instantly forget the times that when we've acted like the person who angered us. This us-against-them contrasting is not an entirely bad trait. Imagine, for example, the people of Libya saying, sure, Gaddafi has systematically raped and pillaged our people and country, but I'm one to talk. After all, when I was 12, I stole a candy bar from the supermarket. That's good. I like that. And drawing lines is an absolute necessity. The most exquisitely elegant work in all of logic is a 147-page little book by George Spencer Brown called Laws of Form. I disagree with that. The most exquisitely elegant work in all of logic. That's a very opinionated thing. I, I, <laughs> how can you be so? How can you be so illogical? How can you make such proclamations? Instantly forgetting that he's making a pro, uh, proclamation about the most exquisitely elegant work in all of logic. Here he is committing his own sin. Jeremy E. Sherman, PhD. 
all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. You've got to draw a line to delineate men, mortals, and this guy called Socrates. Anger and delineation are a chicken and egg to each other. No, they're not. Whether anger makes us draw a hard line or a hard line crossed makes us angry, the two moves go hand and should be hand in hand, not hand and hand. It would be so simple and nice if we could if we could say that such line drawing between good and evil was simply evil, but that's not the case. And anyone who tells you otherwise is being a hypocrite. Anyone who tells you other than what I tell you is is wrong and a hypocrite. Okay. That's a bad argument in of itself. I don't draw lines. Drawing lines is bad. I draw a line that distinguishes good people like me who don't draw lines from the bad people who draw lines. Well, that's kind of like I'm only intolerant of the intolerant. Well, <laughs> then it goes on. That's my problem with people who talk about tolerance as a virtue. Yes, it's a virtue and a vice too. The bind we're in about tolerance is best captured in the paradoxical and hypocritical uh, admonition that one should be intolerant of intolerance. Intolerance is likewise both a virtue and a vice. No, it's not. See, this is the thing. This, (laughs) This annoys me. Intolerance isn't both a virtue and a vice. It's neither. Because if it's both, it's neither. It's like saying... Um, my culture is all cultures. Well, if your culture is all cultures, then it's no culture. Do you see what I'm saying here? Tolerance isn't isn't both a virtue and a vice. It's neither. It can be a virtue and it can be a vice, but uh, you know, definitionally, it's not either. Tolerance is tolerance. Tolerance isn't good and bad at the same time. Tolerance is tolerance. It can be good and it can be bad. Does that make sense? Like, you know, if 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 you're if you're putting up with somebody in your family and you want like a happy home and stuff, then tolerance can be good in that instance. If somebody's stabbing you in the guts repeatedly, tolerance is bad. But that doesn't mean that tolerance is both good and bad all the time. That means that tolerance is tolerance, and sometimes tolerance is good and sometimes tolerance is bad. And it all depends on the situation that you're in. I understand why people would want to talk about tolerance as a pure virtue, though. They're trying, albeit ham-handedly, to compensate for our natural tendency when anger at someone else's faults to have instant amnesia about our equivalent faults. Given our default tendency to forget our flaws when angry and given how little subtly we seem to bring to personal growth, it may seem simpler to just tell everyone that line drawing is always bad even though it isn't and that tolerance is always a virtue even though it isn't. You don't have to worry that anyone will fully comply with ham-handed preaching us that way given our natural tendencies. Still, I'm looking for a more precise, efficient way to temper my tempers and get some balance for my default tendency toward instant line drawing when angry. Well, I just gave you one. If you if you want to keep your wife happy, be tolerant. If you want to avoid getting stabbed in the guts, be intolerant. Solved. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I know that was cheap. That was cheap. Let's, let's push through. Thank you for the submission. Appreciate it. The comment section. Oh, okay. Did I forget the comment section? Where's the comment section? Where is the comment section? Ben, where's the comment section? God wannabes, how to spot a know-it-all. That'd be me. There is no comment section. I don't see a comment section. 
except on a highway, then line drawing is good. <laughs> Sinsoak says, tolerating being stabbed in the stomach is okay if you have a high pain tolerance. No, it's not, because you'll bleed to death. <laughs> it doesn't matter how high your pain tolerance is. Eventually, your liver will fall out, comrade. <laughs> a high pain tolerance in that instance is not very helpful. Arguably, when you're being stabbed in the guts, what you want is a very low pain tolerance. So for the, the first the first instance of the knife being plunged into your chest, you realise it and fucking get out of there. <laughs> if you have a high pain tolerance when someone's stabbing you in the guts, you might stand there for 10 minutes and not realise that your entire innards are now sitting on the floor. It's not helpful at all. <laughs> uh, somebody sent this through. I can't remember who. Someone wanted to send this through for, um, uh, what, what, what's it called? Thanksgiving's Day. Thanksgiving's Day. <laughs> yes. It is a shame. The most capable people are not necessarily running for political office. And that is a very sad commentary on the country. They had major corporations and they had this and that, but they are not running for political office. Why wouldn't someone like yourself run for political office? You have all the money that you possibly need. You've accomplished a great deal, even though you are only 34. I know there's a lot of things that you possibly can do in the years ahead. Why wouldn't you dedicate yourself to public service? Because I think it's a very mean life. I, I would love and I would, I would dedicate my life to this country, but I see it as being a mean life. And I also see it as somebody with strong views and somebody with the kind of views that are maybe a little bit unpopular, which may be right, but may be unpopular, wouldn't necessarily have a chance of getting elected against somebody with no great brain but a big smile. And that's a sad commentary for the political process. Television, in a strange way, has ruined that process, hasn't it? It's hurt the process very much. I mean, the Abraham Lincolns of the world... It's good, isn't it? It's good that you can go back in time. See, this is the thing. um, When people... You know, and uh, like this isn't a, you know, uh, I'm not cheerleading for Donald Trump here, but what you can do, you can go back in time and see things with him like this, but then you can go back in time and see things like Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton. For example, Bill Clinton, uh, uh, you know, arguing for mass deportations and strict border controls. And then, you know, you can go back in time and watch all of these politicians make one policy stance and then two years later go against it. And then two years later, go against that new stance that they made. And so their history caught on video is just a litany. It's a cacophony of endless misdemeanors and missteps and hip, uh, hypocritical positions and lying. And that's on them. Like, you know, that's just the way sometimes in politics, you've got to say some things to ensure votes. Like, I'm not, I'm not being, you know, dramatic about it. It is what it is. Remember, br- politics is a very brutal cutthroat game a very high stakes game and everything that happens in politics, the three laws of politics apply. Everything is done to, you know, win power, keep power or stop somebody else from taking power. So, you know, politicians will lie. They will cheat. They will blackmail. They will backstab. They will announce something on the campaign trail and then go against it the very next day. That makes total sense to me. If you understand the three laws of politics, that everything is done to either get power, keep power, or stop someone else from taking it, then you'll never be surprised by anything that happens in politics, ever. You'll never be offended. You'll never be surprised. You'll never be caught off guard. You'll be perfectly primed to accept everything as it comes and understand it for what it is. But that's the history that they have to deal with. And the thing that Trump has in his favour is you can go back in, in history, things like this, 
I mean, this is this is fucking thirty five years ago, right? I'd love to do it, but I think it's a very mean life. And he's undis- whether you like Donald Trump or not, you have to acknowledge the brutal reality that he is the the president that has been uh, most negatively spoken about ever in all of in all of American history. And that might be a you know that might be a, like the laying on of you know because of the internet, social media, and stuff. So there's more volume there. Fair enough. Like back in the day, maybe there were a lot of people writing about Abraham Lincoln. Of course, Abraham Lincoln locked a lot of journalists up because he was kind of a fascist. But it was a civil war, to be fair. But, you know, the layering on of negative stories is probably amplified thanks to the social media effect and the internet and stuff like that. But it's, it's, there's no doubt whatsoever that Donald Trump is the most negatively reported on president of all time, regardless of the, you know, the conditions that apply. So, um, you know, taking, oh, Christian Lamar, Christian Lamar, I haven't seen you for a long time, brother. How are you going? Thanks for joining us. Um, you know, despite all of that, you can point to things like this 35 years ago, Donald Trump saying it's a very mean game. And then here he is 35 years later and he's being treated like shit. And it's like, well, that's proof positive, isn't it? <laughs> Everybody loved Donald Trump before he ran for president. Everybody knows this. I mean, I mean, Donald Trump was on stage singing. What, what's the what's that old show? He was dressed up like a country bumpkin with a big cowboy hat on, and Green Acres is the place for me. Snoop Dogg was up there making jokes about him, laughing. You know how they say Donald Trump's got a short fuse and he can't take a joke? Well, I, I, I remember watching a roast with Donald Trump like four or five years ago where it was just comedian after comedian after comedian telling him how shitty he was and laughing. He was laughing. Don't tell me he can't take a joke. He obviously can. He sat through his own roast, for fuck's sake. (laughs) So, carry on. Abraham Lincoln would probably not be electable today because of television. He was not a handsome man and he did not smile at all. He would not be considered to be a prime candidate for the presidency. And that's a shame, isn't it? But if all the men are like you then when are we going to get somebody who might be good? I don't know. I hope it's around the corner, but I don't know. I really don't know. What I would like to be involved in is trying to help choose somebody or working with a group of people whereby they put up a candidate who would be acceptable to be a presidential, you know, uh, to, to be the president. The country, if we had the one man... He did that for a long time, too. He funded not only... You know, you can you can use this as a kind of proof positive. People like to say, well, Donald Trump was a Democrat and he funded Democrats and he funded Republicans. He has no thing. Well, I mean, what if he was saying, well, the best person at the particular time, it doesn't matter if they're a Democrat or a Republican. Like, if I thought that they were the best person at the time, I'm going to try and help them get elected. You'd say that's very pragmatic. People turn around and call Donald Trump like a you know far right and stuff. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever fucking heard in my life. I, I did an interview on radio here in Sydney a few years ago before he was elected, and I was lamenting the fact that um, media was coming out and calling Donald Trump far right. I, I, I've never heard such shit. In, <clears throat> I've never heard such shit in all my time of watching and talking about politics. Donald Trump is like the least Republican Republican that we've seen for at least fifty fucking years. He's a, he is. He's a, he's a New York liberal. For all intents and purposes, Donald Trump is not a hardcore conservative. He's not a hardcore Christian. He's not a hard anything. He's not a hard anything. 
he takes very pragmatic positions on things. And if people come to him and say, well, you know, I, I don't think that's the right idea. We should do this. Then he's like, oh, okay, that sounds good. We'll do that then. Yeah, quote unquote hardcore ideologues don't take advice from people and change their positions. They have positions and they keep them. Till death do us part kind of stuff. Calling Donald Trump a hard right uh, ideologue is is plainly absurd. And it's evidenced by the fact that, again, he used to be a Democrat. He used to fund Democrats. Oh, so what? Uh, the, the traits of a hard right uh, ideologue is that they, you know, from time to time will promote Democrats. Is, is that what, is that is that the standard now? It doesn't bode well for the Democrats then. We better not vote for the Democrats because it seems all of them are being promoted by the hard right. Up in your fucking face. Didn't, didn't that just end poorly for you? Carry on. And it's really not that big a situation. You know, people say, well, what could anybody do as president? The one man could turn this country around. The one proper president could turn this country around. I firmly believe that. If you lost your fortune today, what would you do tomorrow? Maybe I'd run for president. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, there we have it. Proof. President Donald Trump is only president because he went broke. There you go. The headlines are written already. All right. What have we got here? We're winding up. We're in the last of the comments. Thanks for joining us, by the way. On the holiday, drunk, fat and lonely, free for all special. Before it's news, everybody here is dead. Cars with skeletons burned in California. Most harrowing video since 9-11. I don't know. We See, see don't make claims like that. This is the most harrowing video since 9-11. People who were here before when, you know, a couple of hours ago, we we literally watched the birth of a half-man, half-pig out of the vagina of a goat. Don't, don't tell me that this is more harrowing than that. Come on, give me some credit, bro. <laughs> how do you know I don't, how do you know I don't, you know, extend my feelers into the dark corners of the internet and watch harrowing videos constantly? If you put most harrowing videos since 9-11 into the headline, I know you're lying. I know you're lying. Because, I mean, let's be honest here. Compared to a half-man, half-pig being born by a goat, is 9-11 really even that harrowing anymore? (laughs) You were there. You saw it. Wow. All right. Let's not preempt this shit. Well, I'm going to show you what happened here. This poor soul right here got burned out. Literally burned. This is a body, people. A body. This is what fire does. A small dog. This is what happens. I was not, but... Oh, my God. I'm feet away from here. This is where I jumped over the fence right there. This guy didn't make it. There's a bunch of dead bodies here. We got trapped. Oh. oh, no! I'm calling BS. Bad acting. Sorry, bro. Bad acting. Front page mag. Ilan Omar voted against legislation that would make it a felony for parents to force their minor daughters to undergo FGM. The US doesn't stand for physical child abuse. Apparently, it does in some states now. 
this practice is outlawed in many other country. Where is the disconnect? I, I've got a good question for you. Uh, why is everybody why is everybody so upset about female genital mutilation, which is understandably um, you know barbaric? Uh, why doesn't anybody talk about circumcision then? Isn't that just male genital mutilation? Honest question. Like honest question. If it's wrong to cut off parts of the female genitalia when they're a baby, is why is it okay to do it to a boy? Can anyone explain that to me? Like, I, I mean, when you're a man, if you want to cut off parts of your genitalia, by all means, go for it. But when you're a baby, you don't really have a choice, do you? So why is everybody really upset about female genital mutilation, but nobody cares about circumcision? Just a question. Like, it makes, it makes me cringe when I see um, conservative politicians come. And I, again, I'm not in favour of female genital mutilation, but it makes me cringe when I see conservative commentators come out and say, oh, my God, we need to stand against female genital mutilation. This is barbaric. But it's like, oh, okay, so, you know, is it okay to lop the end off a dick when the kid's born? Oh, of course. No, it doesn't. Circumcision has health benefits. It doesn't, man. <laughs> It doesn't have health benefits. So, like, I'll be more healthy if I get a circumcision. (laughs) Come on, bro. It doesn't. It doesn't really. It's a myth. Myth. It's actually a religious practice. It's a Jewish uh, religious practice, which is like thousands of years old, if you want to know the secret of it. Sorry. Schmegma is gross. <laughs> that's that's the argument. All right. Well, schmegma is gross. We better we better eliminate that clitoris schmegma immediately by lopping off the end of the genitals when the babies are born. Can only be a good thing. There are health benefits to female genital mutilation. Female genital mutilation isn't even as old as circumcision because circumcision is, like I said, a very ancient um, practice. It's not only a Jewish thing, but it's also in some African tribes, some Asian tribes as well. It's seen as a rite of passage in some, in some, you know, you know, more, would you say, uh, closer to Neolithic societies, where all the boys, for example. Uh, would line up when they turned, you know, 14 or something and get the end of their dick lopped off with a sharp knife, bleed all over the place. That's like their entry into manhood. Um, This ritual is obviously replicated in ancient Jewish culture and, you know, it survives today. What I'm saying is female genital mutilation, if it's it's a specifically Islamic uh, thing, which it isn't, that again also exists in tribes that their their lineage goes back a long way, like I said, into parts of Asia and parts of Africa. And I'm ignoring you because you're right. What have you said that's right? Looking, looking, looking. Foreskin is skin. A clitoris is like cutting off the entire dick. Yeah, but it's still it's still genital mutilation though, isn't it? 
and you know you you can say oh it's just skin but what it does is um it exposes if you cut off the foreskin it exposes the head of the penis constantly which desensitizes it so if because the foreskin covers the head of the penis right so if the head of the penis is um, constantly exposed, then the glands, like the nerves in the glands, they lose their sensitivity. So it's a, it's it's effectively maybe to a different. I mean, if you, do you want to argue fucking degrees of sensitivity here? Because it's wrong to compare a clitoris to a penis to begin with. But if we're doing that, then um, you know degrees of sensitivity over time. The fact that the glands and the heads in the head of the penis are exposed means that it's it's effectively like less pleasure, right? Okay, Kimmy's in favour of cutting baby boys' penises. That's good to know. Um, you don't have any sons, do you? Just, <laughs> just good. <laughs> All right. Show more supplies here. Louis Benice, I haven't seen any of these people before. A Detroit judge has nearly dropped has dropped nearly all the charges against Jumana Nagarwala, a Michigan doctor accused. Uh, we're back on female genital mutilation again. This guy appears to have, um, you know, issues with the Islams. That's all right. That's fine. Uh, the Muslim observer take on the midterms. All right, let's have a look. Why not? Has anyone asked a rabbi why? Yeah. Good question. It's an ancient sacred ritual. Okay, there's a bit of there's a bit of spice in the chat. I'm simply saying that it's not the same. Of course it's not the same. One applies to a male and one applies to a female. What I'm saying is the act of genital mutilation. Why is it okay to genitally, you know, mutilate uh, the genitals of a male and not a female? And you're saying, oh, because it's different. Of course it's fucking different. That's not the issue there. Is the act of genital mutilation on a, a you know a small child that can't defend themselves and make up their own mind wrong or not? That's where it's the same, Kimmy. It's not about the sensitivity. It's not about the pleasure. It's not about any of the semantics. It's about, is it wrong to take a knife to the genitals of a baby that can't make their own decision about having a knife put to their genitals or not? And if it is, then it's wrong for the women as it is wrong for the boys. End of story. End of argument. I know you didn't say it was okay, but you're saying why it's different. I'm saying why it's the same. Right? Midterm elections results for Muslim. I still have my foreskin, by the way. Proudly. No schmegma. No schmegma here. And all of the sensitivity your little heart desires. Too much, maybe. <laughs> that's why I'm gone. That's why I'm Nicolas Cage, gone in 60 seconds. For more than 87,000 national, like, that's a lie. It's actually more like 45. It's more like 45. For more than 87,000 national, local and state governments, Americans elect more than 500,000 public officials 
However, the elections for Congress and the office of the presidency draw the most intense interest in the electoral process. In 2018, the candidates running for 435 congressional districts and 35 Senate seats, as well as thousands of local and statewide institutions, spent more than $5 billion. That's amazing in of itself, $5 billion. The 2018 election was unique in electoral history of America. For the first in the nation's over 200-year history, Americans elected natives, Muslim women, and openly gay people for Congress. Isn't it wonderful? For the first time, 95 women would serve in the 116th Congress compared with 84 women in the 115th and at least 13 new women senators in addition to the 10 who were not contesting. This election would go as a turning point in the history of the country, especially at a time when the nation is sharply polarised on issues such as immigration, healthcare, tax reform and the role of religion in politics. Well, that's not necessarily true. Immigration, most Americans agree that there needs to be some kind of immigration reform. Most Americans agree that there needs to be some kind of health care reform. Most Americans agree that there needs to be some kind of tax reform. And most Americans agree that uh, the role of religion is in politics is mostly up to the individual. So what they're arguing here is like, you know, indefinite definition, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Because most people agree that there needs to be some kind of immigration reform doesn't mean that everybody agrees what the immigration reform should be. Because most people agree that healthcare reform needs to take place doesn't mean that everybody agrees what kind of healthcare there needs to be, and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. So they say people are sharply polarised on issues such as immigration. That's a lie. People are polarised on the details of the issue, but they agree on the issue. They agree that there needs to be immigration reform. They don't agree on what the immigration reform should be. But they most definitely don't like people being just streaming over the border. Actually, most people agree that people streaming over the border is not acceptable. Left or right. <laughs> Kimmy, I never thought I would get into a public dispute over a clit. No, it's not a, it's not a dispute over a clit. Um... Like I said, you know, you, you you were saying, like, we were in heated agreement. Let's put it this way. We were in heated agreement. You were saying why it's different, and I was acknowledging why it's different, and then explaining why it's the same. And I think, you know, like I said, heated agreement. I just love this. People are polarized on issues such as immigration. Well, not really. They want immigration reform. They're not really polarised on the issue of immigration. Most people hate the idea of an open border. They're polarised on the semantical details that come after the agreement. The heated agreement aspect of it. Muslim Observer take on the midterms. And then I think there's one more comment here. Go back again. No more replies. Uh, Lewis asks, do Muslims believe <clears throat> all very Islamic-based? Oh, too far. Okay. Insect. <laughs> Big problem. 
do Muslims believe Sharia law should supersede the Constitution? Well, um, I'm sure some Muslims do and some Muslims don't. I guess you'd have to ask all of the Muslims to find out if they all believe that Sharia law should supersede the Constitution. I know plenty of Muslims here in Australia that don't believe that Sharia law should supersede the Constitution because, like, the lapsed Catholics, there are lapsed Muslims. I've sat down and had beer and pork with a Muslim. (laughs) But maybe this will explain the final comment here. Thanks, Booger. Booger, I love that. Uh, From Seawags. Let's talk about how Aussies are the biggest pussies on the plant. You are whole country is a big prison. <laughs> Watch out for the Muslims when you drop the soap. I'll read that comment. Uh, comment. I'll read that comment again. Thanks, Booger. Let's talk about how Aussies are the biggest pussies on the plant. Your you are whole country is a big prison. Watch out for Muslims when you drop the soap. Wow, it's very entertaining. I appreciate your. Uh, addition to the program, Seawags. You've certainly outshone yourself today, my friend. Hmm. Well, let's talk about how Aussies are the biggest pussies on the on the plant. Well, I'd love to. I'd love to. Biggest pussies on the plant. Uncircumcised pussies. You'll be pleased to know. I know. I know. It's, it's it cuts me right to the core. He got me. <laughs> I mean, how how can I even recover? How can I even uh, recover from that? Interestingly enough, uh, the new Prime Minister here, a guy named Scott Morrison, you'll be pleased to know, Seawags, he recently invited some Islamic, some leaders from the Islamic community to sit down and talk about, uh, you know, extremism. Because you see, a couple of weeks ago, the Prime Minister here came out and said that uh, Islamic the Islamic community makes excuses for terrorism. Like, they're not serious. They make excuses for terrorists because he's such a big pussy. And he invited the, you know, the you know the Grand Mufti of Australia to sit down with him and have a talk about extremism and how, you know, we can best tackle it. And, you know, a few of these high-profile Islamic leaders uh, turned around and said, well, we're not going to sit down with you. We're going to snub you. Uh, you can go and get wrecked basically to which you know the obvious narrative is present um for years and years and years we've heard from these specific community leaders that they need more outreach they need more inclusion they need more interaction with the government in order to come up with solutions to these problems of extremism and then upon getting an invitation to sit down with the prime minister and talk about exactly that they snubbed him so it's kind of like, wow, <laughs> aren't you just proving his point correct that he put out there a couple of weeks ago by saying you make excuses for extremism? Not taking sides or anything. But obviously uh, a prime minister who comes out and says, well, Muslim community leaders make extre- make excuses for terrorists just proves what a big pussy he is, I guess. Now tell me again how Barack Obama... Gave billions of dollars to Iran. (laughs) If you want to go down that path. Barack Hussein Obama giving billions of dollars to Iran. Or we can talk about since 2001, after the 9-11 attacks under George W. Bush, how Islamic uh, immigration increased tenfold year upon year upon year, comrade. 
We can talk about that. If you're worried about being, you know, I, I, I don't want to present myself as the biggest pussy on the planet. I mean, you are whole country is a big prison after all. I best watch out when I drop the soap. Who knows what fate may await me. After all, biggest pussy on the planet. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the weekly free-for-all. Hope you had a lovely Thanksgiving. Thanks to everyone who showed up. Thanks to everyone for commenting. Celeste, Monica, Kimmy Jong-un, Key Wizard, Stefan, Winds Alive, Sin Soaked. Who am I forgetting? Monica, Jesus is in the chat. <laughs> Christian Lamar, thanks for joining us. Uh, who else? Who else have we got? Laura, too many to mention. So many names. Laura Lai, Laura Lee, thanks for joining us. I'll get that right one day. Ben K. Veritas, Ashley in Tennessee, just coming in. General Eaton, unmutilated pussy. There you go. <laughs> I like that. Fantastic way of looking at it. Dan the man, good to see you. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy thanks taking. Been an absolute pleasure to be with you guys. Uh, I will be on Trust and Verify on Sunday night with the ubiquitous James R. Uh, apart from that, the Daily Boogie be back next week. Starting block, obviously. Have a holiday. Yes, nice holiday show. We took it easy tonight. Till next time, guys. Stay calm. Stay rational. God bless. And we'll see you soon.